This is Unfiltered, episode 192 for June 15th, 2016. Great respect, Mr. Secretary. You are head of Homeland Security. What do you think? I believe that meaningful, responsible gun control is part of Homeland Security, and it's something we have to address. Is this a new change? Is this a change? Is this the first time you're saying this? Is this a change? I have not talked about gun control publicly at this point, but I think that we have to face the fact that gun control is part and parcel of Homeland Security, given how things are evolving. Guys, we have totally missed you. Welcome back again to another edition of Unfiltered, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show about the news you shouldn't be watching. Guess what? Hey, the presidential primary season is over! Woo! Yeah! All right! Let's go to the conventions! All right, is that enough? All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Chase. That's Chris. Hey, Chris. Hey there, everybody. You know, <laughs> this this week, we could have been, there's so much to talk about. Wow. There's so much. Uh, of course, we're going to get into the Orlando stuff. Uh, the DNC was hacked by Russians. We'll be talking about that. The Brexit is all, the vote for the Brexit is mere days away. We'll be discussing that. Also, the UK surveillance bill, the, the use the Surveillance Powers Act, which sounds scary as heck, but really just legitimizes what's already going on. We'll be discussing that. Of course, we've got some fascinating election updates, Mr. Chase. I mean, I'm seriously, I'm not just, I'm not just. Did you mention about net neutrality holding up too in court? You know, we should start there. We do it because we have cyber, so we might as well start at the top with cyber. cyber. We're going to end the whole thing on a high note. Yeah, And and this week, first time, Ah. we have a mailbag segment. Yeah, Chase's mail sack. Mail mail sack. Yeah, we'll introduce the mail sack this week. Yeah, hey Chase, yeah. Uh, why don't we start there? So uh, surprisingly, the uh, telcos pushed back against uh, some of the net neutrality. <laughs> no, it's not surprising. No, it's not. No, no, it's no not. of course not. No, no. But I, the surprising part was that they, <laughs> that, that they held up. That the that the what the rules that the well, FCC it, wanted. It, it, it held up because, in, in my opinion, and and you know I'm no legal scholar or anything, but. When they reclassified ISPs as Title II, when they when they reclassified them in into the the common carrier thing and they moved them into that new classification, they essentially sealed it. They they made it happen and by doing it legitimately. And by the way, give props to the FCC chairman because this guy for the longest thing we thought, oh, he, this guy came from the cable lobby, right? You thought that he was going to be a shill that he was bought and paid for, and this guy compared to many of the previous FCC commissioners, has done so much for the consumer side of things. I've been totally impressed with the So guy. I have two problems with what you just said, because either it, it requires me to fundamentally really eva- reevaluate my model of how I evaluate the uh, corporate spinning door between the government and uh, corporations like Comcast, which yeah. I'm not prepared to do. I'm, I'm, what <laughs> I don't I'm, blame you. What I am prepared to do here <laughs> tonight, Mr. Chase, yeah. is, uh, and let me be clear. Wait, uh, hey, hey. I'm trying. Did you catch yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. I, good. I, I, was just, I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, wait. <laughs> good. Uh, so, Chase, let me be clear. Okay. I uh, I just think this guy's fooling us. I think he's doing a once over. No, because yeah. he's done so many things. No, man, I think it's the long con. I think it's the long con. Well, all right, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't know. So, I, just, so, so when Clinton gets in, uh-huh. right? Yeah, when you know, when she gets in. So, <laughs> when she gets in, uh-huh. he's going to keep his job. Yeah. So, 
So you think this is the super long con? I don't know. There's some. There's some long con in it. There's mm-hmm. something going. There's on. something going. On. Right. I don't know yet. I, I actually. I don't really. I to tell you the truth, I think probably the mistake would be if I'm actually being honest with you, and not joking around. Yeah. I think probably the mistake would be would be to attribute too much to one person. I mean, sure, you could say he's responsible for all of this, or he's representing an agency where where you know. Well, he's actually listening to the consumer somewhat. Or the agency itself is, and he's the representation of that collective effort inside the agency. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, don't, I wouldn't contrib- I wouldn't actually say it's all because of him. No, but no, it does. No, see, but you true. could argue that he's not putting like the, he's not going out of his way to put the political kibosh. Right, on stuff. and it also helps that the the the, the commission has, has three Democrats and two Republicans on it. That also helps too a little bit, right? Never yeah. underestimate the power. So while before we get into like serious news, just we can we can play this just for as long as you want. I found this whole thing between Gawker and Hulk Hogan and that rich guy fascinating. (laughs) And there is new fallout tonight from that big bankruptcy filing by Gawker. The media giant now struggling to stay in business after being ordered to pay millions in its court battle with pro wrestler Hulk Hogan. But as ABC's Lindsay Janice reports, Gawker says it is not dead yet. So what do you think of this? So people don't know. I am a real American. There are. Fights for the rights. You you know Hulk Hogan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think is this worth a, is this worth the unfiltered show's time? I, I think from if you look at it from the angle of how the rich can 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 sort of shut down a media outlet that they just don't well, like. To, well, to be fair, to be fair, I mean, do you know the details of the Gawker situation and Hulk Hogan? I mean, I and know how them they, they as well pushed as out a sex tape and they yes. called it journalism. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I know, I know. I know. Okay, I, I honestly, I do feel that Gawker was in the wrong here. I mean, it, what they did it was a, a straight expose against Hulk Hogan or Terry Bollea. Were they wrong for publishing Leo Laporte's dick pic? Uh, How is and I mean, is that any different? No, it is different because what Leo did was live public on the air at the time. The video that Gawker pushed out was not public. It was it was not mainstream. It was okay. not like pu- that's live a on that's the a pretty fair differentiator. It was all, it was Hulk Hogan's private personal stuff where Leo Laporte did actually he was sleeping with somebody else's wife. And he li- and, and, well, they did they did they did yeah. they exposed his text messages and then about a year yeah. after that they exposed his dick. But both of those things were live on the air. You're right. right yeah. That is a big. I think I think I think you could probably make the case though. So okay, let's take let's take Donald Trump. Yeah. Donald Trump hates the Washington Post. Washington Post has publicly said they have teams of people researching the hell out of Donald Trump. What if, say, Donald Trump loses the election and he gets in his head that it's because of the Washington Post reporting and he decides that he's going to take the remaining funds of the Donald Trump fortune and he's going to put the Washington Post out of business? Does that cross the line? Well, he can do what he wants to do with his money as long as it's within a legal spectrum, right? You know. The the thing is, you know, I've and I know you're kind of alluding to the fact that he pulled the the press credentials uh, from right. the Washington Post, yep. and you know, it, there's something called what the First Amendment, right? You know, freedom of the press, and you know, they're they're trying to do their jobs and covering just because he doesn't like the negative attention. Yeah, he can do what he wants to do and try to put him out of business. Now, granted, it's a newspaper; a lot of newspapers are going out of business anyway, so he might just be pushing uh, something out the door, but. If it's legal, right? If it's within the realms, you know, he's got a lot of money. He can do what he wants to do with it. Whether or not yeah. you agree with it is another point. I think I, I just have a real disdain for uh, a misuse. What feels like, at least to me, as an average citizen, it feels like a, an, a, it feels like powerful people abusing the legal system to punish, to, to essentially kill a company. He's essentially waging war against a company. Sure. 
Absolutely. And, you know, maybe there needs to be protections in place, right, for the, for those kind of situations. I, I know in, in other parts of uh, the legal world, you know, like in Britain and Australia, these kind of lawsuits, they just don't happen. They can't happen. You know, there's not like an unlimited supply of of money and, and reward uh, – not rewards, but awards and, and settlement cases think, and things like that. So. The other thing that fascinates me about this is the man who is uh, funding Hulk Hogan's case uh, has, is on like a, a nine or ten year vendetta against Gawker because – uh, Denton originally uh, publicly ex- exposed. Now that, it. yeah, yeah. So this this millionaire has spent the last nine years or ten years plotting and, and and researching Gawker and finding a way to take them out of business. That's impressive. Well, yeah, and, and the other thing too, though, in that scenario is, I think Hulk Hogan would have won without his help anyway. Uh, obviously, you know, he injected himself in the situation. He offered to help Hulk Hogan with his legal team. But I think Hulk Hogan was going to win in this anyway because of possibly so. matters. You know, I'll give you my meta unfilter take on it. Uh, my meta unfilter take on it is what's going to happen to Gawker is pretty inconsequential long-term to uh, public p- reporting. And what this case is doing is for those of us that are paying attention is it is exposing a legal loophole or however you want to call it. This probably not the first time at all has been used to take out a publication or threaten them. Um, Oh, and so it, and it gives ha- us an insight. Yeah, and it, when and it's and it's happened to YouTube artists. It, it's happened to many types of people where you know you have somebody with big money, sure, sure, and, sure, and they sure, come yeah. in and, and oh, they yeah. want to try to shut you down. Yeah, or you know it could be as simple as a as a copyright infringement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. Oh, I know. Dude. Hey, I know. Uh, remember just a few moments ago we were talking about that revolving door yeah, uh, between yeah. Comcast, uh, FCC, yeah, Comcast, yeah. FCC. There is a uh, report uh, about uh, Google. And that revolving door. And after shady geopolitical dealings with the White House, Google has now moved on to lobbying governments across Europe. And that's according to a report by U.S.-based watchdog. Artis Gerich Chikan investigates. A transparency group has looked at the revolving door between tech giant Google and governments in Europe and the U.S. It found that the door has been spinning a lot in the past decade. I like how RT does these produced packages now where they put some music in there with, like, like mock infographs. So they talk about 15 moves from Google to government, 65 moves from government to Google. Also, a fun exercise for you at home. Why don't you Google how many times Eric Schmidt visited the White House? Oh, maybe they're about to tell us. He also visits the uh, prime minister. Isn't that interesting? Uh, It's uh, oh, they're gonna tell us right here. Here we go. Hundreds of meetings between Google and the White House. What do you think? You know, eh? Yeah, I know. I I can't. It could be. It could be so many things. The cable could, guy goes to the White House a lot because he's fixing cables. So it, it could be everything from uh, advice on uh, government technology. To uh, public searches for um, Chris, anthrax. Let me, let me turn know. the tables on. Let's say, for example, you're a technology guy and you're working in the White House. Whoa! And you have access to call Eric and say, "Hey, Eric, you want to come on over and hang out? Wouldn't you call him?" That's a pretty interesting idea. So you're saying if I'm like the CTO at the White House, yeah, or you're you're in a position where you're doing research and you have access to anybody, and we're you want. trying to figure out, hey, we got this big data problem. Yeah, this uh, this whole uh, healthcare.gov issue. Oh yeah, <laughs> my whatever. website's crashing. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you're thinking, uh, yeah. so you, hold on, let me just see if okay. I'm getting this. So yeah, yeah, uh, just, yeah. I want to visualize the whole thing. So you're thinking they're, they're picking up the phone, or maybe in this case, they're picking up Skype. And Actually, they're, they're using Google Hangouts, but that's okay. <laughs> of course, right. Yes, yeah. of course. Uh, so they're calling, they're picking up, and uh, hello, everybody. They're saying, uh, hello, so and so at Google. We know you built this big thing that does this big uh, computation thing. Why don't you fly over here to DC? Yeah. Sit down with us and have a meeting. And All they're, right. they're doing this hundreds of times. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, okay. I'm actually in town anyway. You know, I'm I'm doing a data dump at the CS. Uh, you know, CSA. So before so. you look at the chat room, do you CSA, have a guess? Sorry. Don't look at the chat room. Do you have a guess of how many times Eric Schmidt visited the visited the White House in the last eight years? Now, don't guess yet. I'm not looking. How many times did Eric Schmidt visit the White House in the past twelve months? Eight years. Eight years. Eight years. Since Obama's been in, really. You ready? Tell me when you're ready. All right, I'm not looking at the chat room. This is purely a guess. I haven't... You ready for me to pull the handle? Well, I'm, you want me to guess? Eight years? Yeah. 800 times. Wow. Uh, 427 times is uh, apparently is the uh, is the number. Uh, well, I was, I was figuring 100 times a year. <laughs> President Clinton says 333. Hmm, I don't... Uh, oh, Bill's I don't in know. the chat room? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about that, Chase. I don't know. Uh, now, there is a story that is totally fits within our cyber segment that yeah. we do at the top of every show. I love that we just now we just we call it cyber now we just it's cyber. We're just cyber it's cyber we like the cyber at the top of the show. I'm not seeing really <laughs> any mainstream reporting on this, but the story appears to be legit. I, I'm hoping maybe Mr. Alan Jude will break it down tomorrow on TechSnap. In the meantime, TechSnap though, tomorrow. You know, uh, we do have some reporting on the story. A pair of teams of Russian hackers has apparently broken into the servers controlled by the DNC and has stolen their collected research, their opposition research detailing the various dealings of Donald Trump. Yes, Russian government hackers penetrated the computer network of the Democratic National Committee, gained access to their entire database of opposition research, according to committee officials and security experts who responded to the breach. They were also able to read all of the email and chat traffic. These are actually separate Russian teams, which we'll detail. Some of the hackers had access to the DNC network for about a year, but all were expelled over the past weekend in a major computer cleanup campaign. Says the company that they, they brought in. <laughs> Might want to check from time to time. Make sure they're still out. Uh, now, in addition to that, the networks of presidential candidates Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were also targeted by Russian spies, as were the computers of some GOP political action committees. But details on those cases were not uh, available. The DNC does say that no financial donor or personal information appears to have been accessed or taken. And you can believe that if you'd like to. So this is an interesting story. What the hell do you think this story is about? Russian hackers getting into the DNC? You think the, now, Putin has said he's a big fan of Donald Trump. Yeah. Or he admires Donald Trump. You think yeah. maybe they're uh, hooking him up with some info on the back end? <laughs> you know, well, why, would I, they, why would they? Why would they? Why? Because. Oh, my God. I now, you know what? Oh, holy smokes. Wait. Let's do it. You ready? Yeah. You ready? Okay. Okay. We've got to fry a little bacon. All right. This bacon, by the way. Wait. Yep, that is definitely from Renton. <laughs> okay, here's what I'm thinking. All right. Hillary Clinton scares the absolute piss out of the Russians. Oh, yeah. Because she's, you know, when she was in the State Department, that's when the shenanigans goes, goes down in Syria and Libya, yeah. right? Then the, and, and the whole point about the action in Syria is to take out Assad, who is an ally of Russia and yeah, China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got to ask yourself, if you're Vladimir Putin, if you're Putin... 
wouldn't you be tempted to push the scales toward Donald Trump's direction? The man is completely oblivious to the actual intricacies of the situation in Syria. He, Remember, Donald but, Trump publicly said, let Putin bomb the hell out of him. He's saving us trouble. He said that publicly. To, to Putin, Trump has got to be a way less of a threat than a Clinton presidency. So maybe they get their guys. Now, you've got to understand something. Russian hacking groups that are supposedly aligned with the government don't always necessarily do something at the direction of the government because the groups themselves are very internally competitive and will often just go hack things that are important to show the Kremlin, hey, look, look what I have done. Look what I am capable of. Our group is worth funding. Keep us around, Vlad. And so sometimes they go out and do these things without even the prompting of the government directly. They come back. Putin says, you brought me something very good here. And then they give that over to the Trump campaign, See, giving him the secret sauce he needs I could to just campaign spin the this, Clinton campaign. I can just spin this the other way, though. Yeah. <laughs> this, this could be completely made up. There was no hacking situation. Yeah. And this is just to add fuel to the fire that we need to put more pressure on Russia and cyber yeah, you're right. because of this situation. Yeah, you're right. And, and really, this is to show why are the Russians hack, are trying to hack against Donald Trump? Because he's not a good candidate for president. Otherwise, they wouldn't hack against him. I'm Hillary. I'm a war hawk. We need to go after the Russians because we all know that Trump is really a plant for the Democratic Party. As Rikai says, don't worry, though. Hillary's email is totally safe. Uh, The (laughs) the whole DNC. So I don't know. You could be right. I could be right. This uh, Young Turks commentary does go in an interesting direction. Do it. Like to think somehow they can't. We're deluding ourselves. I've got friends who who helped set up uh, Electronic Crimes Task Force in the Secret Service. So he's been talking to people who set up Electronic Crimes Task Force in the Secret Service, and and he's going to tell you why the Russian secret uh, hackers, the ninja hackers in Russia, are so much better than our uh, blue-collar punch clock workers. Now, do you have a guess as to why the Russian hackers are so much better than our hackers? I'll tell you. This guy It's made up. (laughs) The Russians are so far ahead of us in cyber espionage and crime. It, it's just the U.S. is open like a sieve. It's a shopping center. It's a door. Take what you really? want and walk out the front door. You always Absolutely. See in- and there's a couple different reasons for it, but one of the primary reasons. Oh, wait for it. I just Does anybody have a guess? Because it's it actually, I think he's going to say it, and I actually think it's 100% legit. I, that's why I'm playing this clip, because I think it's absolutely legit. But we have talked about this problem in TechSnap before. Is drug testing. If you're a great hacker and you're like, oh, yes. come work for the CIA and um, no prostitutes, gay sex, uh, no drugs. All right, Wait, see you later. Two questions. First but of it, all, but what if you want to work for the Russians, programmers actually do drugs. Come on, it's got to be so low. Dude, I'm it's so high. I, I know it's that's so high. And for the Russians, they're, there's they they're have, not as stringent. Well, they've also got more of a hybrid system, so that it's you may go and you may take things abroad, but if you take things at home, we break you. I mean, so I think that's a very valid point is the Russians have a basically as long as you color inside the lines, we're going to let you do whatever you want. And so you they can get do weed crowd. and you can do what you want. to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, I can so I'll maybe lead into a little bit just because I know I mean, we've heard about this before where government agencies are trying to be a little bit more lenient when it comes to weed. Usage. We've actually played testimony ta- on the show. We've talked about that, you know, that they're willing to overlook that because, you know, a lot of talented programmers and and white hat workers would love to get into this, but, you know, they've done a little weed and, you know, they can't piece. piece and we're not, and yeah, no, Chairman's asking, we're not saying all uh, computer people are like all of a sudden druggies, but we're saying no, that there no, is, he said that. there is a lot of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of, but actually 
that was one or they talked about two or three uh, of like 15 disqualifiers that are. Pretty oh, yeah, there's too. a lot. Yeah. yeah I wanted to just so there is um, we were just talking about something that's not being covered very well in the, in the media. And that was the uh, DNC hack. Something else that's being really mishandled because I guess it just does not worth their time is the, the quote unquote Brexit. I don't know if you are. You, you've probably heard the term the Brexit, right? Yeah. Now, in the U.S., we know very little about it. And so we've, we haven't been covering it here in the show because I don't want to bumble it and then have the audience get mad at us. And I've been – the only reason why I've known about it, I've been reading into it, is because I follow Google Trends on Twitter. Yeah. And a lot of people have been Googling the Brexit. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do is I'm going to cover – I'm going to play a few clips. Um, now, the last time we played Nigel, Nigel Farage – was the first time he was ever talking about the Brexit. And we got a bunch of emails saying, this guy's a D-bag. He's a total loon. The Brexit's never going to happen. You should not be playing this clip. You should, be, you should feel bad as a person. And so You we, hate the world. Yeah, yeah. And we got a lot of crap about it. And so we just sort of shied away from covering, covering this. This was almost a year and a half ago that this, that, that, that particular incident happened. I want to fast forward now to Nigel Farage. But who's laughing now? Well, yeah, because I think <laughs> yeah. the vote's like eight days away yeah, or something like right that. it's right on the corner. So this is Nigel. Well, Nigel! thank you. Well, Commissioner, I don't think we can call the Juncker investment plan a rip-roaring success. Just have a look around at the empty seats this morning. Uh, and the idea that tens of billions of private capital are going to arrive for joint projects with you guys, frankly, I think is pie in the sky. Though, happily, Mr. Cameron, of course, has committed £6 billion of our money to this project. And if ever you're short of money, uh, just ask Mr. Cameron, because he always pays up. (laughs) But it is, I think, these grand projects uh, that in many ways, I think, are sowing the seeds of the end of this political project. I came in here in 1999 and sat at the back, and there were only three of us in the whole building who thought our member states should leave the European Union. But it's grand projects that have turned the tide of public opinion, in particular the introduction of the euro. You know, I warned you, we all warned you, that it would not work for the Mediterranean countries. It could comfortably work for the optimal currency zone in the north, but no, through massive ambition and hubris, you ploughed on uh, and you allowed countries like Greece to join a currency that they were never fit for. And what is happening to Greece now? Well, they're facing the next bailout in probably July of this year, And because you want to hold your project together, you are forcing them, bit by bit, to become a third world country. I've I've felt that way, too, just by watching what's happening. Oh, yeah. All I can say, frankly, is shame on you. The other big, grand project was to allow into this union first eight and then ten former communist countries. Some of them with human rights records that are, frankly, shocking and abysmal. Um, and others in which corruption is so rife that these countries have not made the transition to being full Western democracies. When I was first elected here, the word immigration did not even appear on my election address. We did not use that word once when the first three of us got elected here. But now, as we've allowed much poorer countries to have the free movement of peoples, we see considerable anger in Britain and in many countries across the north of Europe. And yes, it's led to the rise of parties that some may consider to be deeply unpleasant. But that's what happens when you take control out of people's lives. And the other feature, uh, President, that I've noticed here is the growth of what I can only describe as authoritarianism. You know, we actually saw 
the Prime Minister of Greece removed effectively by a coup d'etat and we saw and we saw we saw Mr Berlusconi removed by a coup d'etat and in both cases represented by appointees who were former directors of Goldman Sachs. So I think you've sowed the seeds of your own destruction. We have in two weeks' time what is to be the biggest event in the history of this project. It is the British referendum, and it's not just about whether Britain leaves the European Union, because if we make that choice, I'm confident many other countries will make that choice too. I now, uh, I don't think this... I mean, I don't think this has gotten very much coverage here, not very much in terms of... Uh, Discussion, especially not compared to so many other uh, stories that are hitting the news cycle. I think it'll, it'll hit it when they get a little closer. It's damn close. So I I, I dipped into the BBC to get a sense the of Beebs. the Beebs. And here's what here's my here's my take on this. The uh, the establishment really doesn't want this vote to pass. The people, to some degree, seem to want the vote to pass. Yeah. Um, and so, what better to go get a little word from the establishment than going to the BBC? For this clip to fully sink into our U.S. audience, you have to understand there's a bit of a, a stronger um, emotional reaction to the public across the pond when the name Putin is invoked. It, it's, it stokes more fear. There's more imagery around Putin. Well, they're really close to him too. Right. And so uh, Putin is used in a lot of ways to generate like extreme discussion over there. And so you have to bear in yeah. mind that when we hear Vladimir Putin, we, we have a reaction here in the States, but it's nothing like it is across the pond. And so that's something that I would bear in mind as we watch this clip from the BBC. When it comes to what they think of Britain's EU referendum, many world leaders have already put their cards on the table. The American president has come down against a Brexit. So has the German chancellor, the Japanese prime minister and other key players. But there is one world leader who, on Brexit, is keeping his cards very close to his chest. And that is the Kremlin leader. In public, poker-faced Vladimir Putin hasn't said anything at all about Britain's referendum. So now we're, we're, what we're doing here, right, is we're, we're conveying the message to you. We're going to begin to convey the message to you that the Brexit could benefit Putin. Therefore, Brexit bad. Mind you, in Britain, they've been saying plenty about Russia. The only country, if the truth is told... That would like us to leave the EU. Funny, it sounds like when as soon as somebody says that, it sounds like that's not actually the truth. And you know, like you don't even have to know the next words out of this <laughs> let guy's me, mouth. Let, let, me, let me ask you this question real yes, quick sir. before you continue this. Clip. Yes, sir. It's a good clip, by the way. Love the clip. Uh, you, you got kids, right? Yeah, you yeah. got three of them, right? <laughs> that I know of, right? Hey, let's talk about Dylan. What happens when you tell him not to do something? What's like the first thing he kind of wants to do? Kind of wants to do it. Whoa. Jeez, hey now. Hi there. Hey now. <laughs> he, whist he whistles at me. Uh, I, well, of course he wants to do it or he'll ask why. Right. But like, but you know, even as an adult, if you're told you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you're going to want to do it. <laughs> so, yeah. so here, he, you know, here's the story right. by the Beebs. You got key political leaders, which by the way, most people just don't like political leaders in general. And they tell you, we don't want you to do it. We don't want you to do it. It's going to happen. Truth is told that would like us to leave the EU is Russia. And that should probably tell us all that we need to know. So is that true? 
Is the Kremlin secretly betting on a Brexit? And if so, why? What kind of a game is Russia playing? Ask Russian officials that question, and they'll assure you Russia isn't even at the table. I can say that Russia has nothing to do with Brexit at all. We're not involved in this process. Involved. We have no interests um, in this field. No interests? Kremlin critics say Moscow is bluffing. I like how they just have these random actors. So for those of you on the audio feed, <laughs> there's just these random BBC actors that are supposedly stand-ins for world leaders. And they got kind of a Russian-looking thin European guy. He doesn't look <laughs> yeah. Russian at all, actually. He just looks thin European. So if there's a Brexit... And they have like a green screen card where they keep playing actually, cards. Actually, it's not a green screen. They just put a little... Maybe. or maybe. May, There could be there could yeah. be a deck of cards with a green square on it, and then they're yeah. just... I don't... You know, of course, in the background, yeah. Uh, if there is, you know, crisis in the European Union, uh, of course, this will be a local propaganda victory. Because Moscow sees everything as a zero-sum game. Cut. So what's bad for the European Union is good for Russia. It's just as simple as that. Really? Because, you know, I seem to recall a certain high official American person from the State Department. I'm driving off laughing. This is what I'll say. <laughs> OMG, OMG, OMG. So I, I don't I don't know if I agree with, with his analysis so far because Victoria Newland, uh, she it, seems to disagree. Yeah, yes, yeah. But why would a weaker EU deal Russia a stronger hand? Well, that's not even a good effect. Linda didn't even do a good job on that one. <laughs> well, Moscow's game plan involves getting Brussels to scrap sanctions. So we have gone from Russian officials saying they have, they don't give a shit about the Brexit, which is probably not true, to now the Kremlin game plan, the entire game plan, which is being put forth by the cunning Vladimir Putin. Russia, a stronger hand. Well, Moscow's game plan involves getting Brussels to scrap sanctions. The calculation may be that an EU in trouble would do that more quickly. So a game plan and a calculation by Moscow. As part of its strategy, Russia has been playing divide and rule, courting those EU states like Greece, which are friendlier to Moscow. Russia's been playing a divide game? So the stakes couldn't be higher ahead of this EU referendum. Not just for the British public, but for global players too, waiting to see how the cards fall. Steve Rosenberg, BBC News, Moscow. So what they're really saying there is don't go vote for Vlad, public. Don't because, go vote Because Russia's going to win? Yeah, don't go vote for Putin's uh, game plan, his master strategy. Can, right? That's what I take from that clip. Right. So, I don't, so here's what I'm asking. Here's what I'm putting out is in the unfiltered subreddit, could you, uh, those of you who are in the area, our boots on the ground over there, could you help us with this? Could you get us good clips that tell us both sides of the story? Because there is so much propaganda and crap out there. And when I look at the David Camerons of the world who are obviously messaging very strongly about the financial implications, well, this is going to be bad financially. And they're, they're now they're really starting, they're getting some serious traction with the money. I've watched all the different tracks they've tried to convince people why the Brexit would be bad. But the one they've seemed to have gotten the most traction is the money one. And so I would love more information if you guys could help us out, unfiltered.reddit.com. Uh, both our producer Matt and I are, are hoping you can help us. And stay tuned for the overtime segment where we will have um, some clips on the uh, surveillance powers bill. So the Brexit is happening soon and we'll hopefully have great coverage next week once we get some reports from Boots on the ground. All right, Mr. Chase. Uh, you know, this would probably be a pretty good spot uh -oh. to uh, take a – well, we'll take a moment here. We'll go and step into the lab. 
Oh. Wait. Oh, this is nice. So let's step in lab. First, we'll mention... There's a lab. Yeah. Well, we got a lab for the Patreon page where we're always <laughs> updating and concluding and concocting new perks. Ah. Yeah. Patreon.com slash unfiltered. This is where you go to support this show to keep us going. This is a listener-supported program. Now, two reasons really that really stand out in my mind. Number one, we don't want to have to play the click game. This is really – this would be like – could you imagine if Jupiter Broadcasting had like a VC investor? And I was like, yeah, we have this show where we're going to say shit that nobody else will, is willing to say. Mm-hmm. And our entire goal is only to please 455 people or how, are pe- how many people are our patrons. We're not going to try to get the most clicks possible. That our, VC would fire my ass. Yeah, but what if that VC uh, came to us and said, we're going to give you guys $10 million and don't change a thing? All right. Who's this VC? Can I meet him? <laughs> or her? I would like to meet him or her right now. <laughs> but, you know, the concept, Eric Schmidt right? calls you. <laughs> Shut up, Chase. So uh, this is the idea. The concept here is we want to be loyal to our audience. We want to create a people's history with this show. Even when we get things wrong, like if we fry some bacon and it's totally crazy, we don't have an agenda. We can come back and correct that down the road. Our mission is to make these people happy and Give them a little something extra. So not only are these the folks you can thank for keeping us on the air, but they're also the folks that get extra perks, like our BitTorrent sync full of all of the clips that we talk about, the the full source code. And by the way, 192, another banner episode that if you're getting the source code, go through and watch and listen to the additional clips. We have video versions of stuff in there. It's great stuff. And... Depending on your level, like if you get up to the 33 Club, you not only you get swag from time to time, but you get the brand new feature of getting your mail stuffed right into Mr. Chase's mail sack. Chase, let's go ahead and open up your... Go ahead, Chase. Grab your, all right, all right, grab your right, mail right, sack right, there, Chase. Right. There we go. All right. Got a, got a few letters here in my sack. All right. All right. Okay. And, I'm ready for and, it. And my bag. Is it sack or bag? It's a sack. All right, sack. All right, fair enough. Uh, we got two messages this week. One from Stefan. Stefan says the following. He says, hey, just want to thank you both for the great show you provide. I found Unfilter after listening to No Agenda for a long time. And in my opinion, you guys have a better, tighter podcast with the essentials and jingles. Thanks. You know, we do try to make it tight. And so that way, if you only have time for one show, we try to get you the... the that's, that's, I, I really appreciate that observation because we really shoot for that. My only grievance All right. is on that me. you dwell a little too much on Patreon support. Mention it and get on with it. Okay. Don't let it become a sob story. It turns people off. You know, I find a, it... I find that kind of funny coming from the No Agenda show <laughs> since they have like an hour of yeah, content on there. Yeah, but that's yeah, okay. Yeah. You know what? Fair enough. I would say what we should do. What do you think mm-hmm. of this, Chase? Mm-hmm. What if we set a milestone mm-hmm. where the Patreon mention goes down to like 30 seconds after a certain milestone? That's a good milestone. Yeah. Okay. That's some good uh, feedback. That's I, some I, good I, feedback. A suggestion could be mention it after a great breakdown of, the, of an event. Breakdown like these are only possible because of Patreon. That's was my two cents. And yeah. again, thank you for the great show. You know, we uh, we do kind of do that. Like right now, we're doing this before we get into the Orlando shooting. So that way, if that uh, you know, so that we get this, so we're kind of clearing the room, as you will, yes. as you were. You keep reading. You keep reading. I'm going to go turn close the window. All right, fair enough. And next one and last one comes from Bill Johnson. He says, "Hey, I'm glad you guys are still doing a great job since I found you when the big whistle blowing happened." I also find it reassuring that you are actively trying to find a way to give something of value back to your financial supporters, aside from swag. A big thanks to you both. And that's from Bill Johnson. So I just want to say thanks to Stefan S. and Bill Johnson for 
being members of Club 33. And uh, if you sign up uh, between now or next week, or if you're an existing member, uh, look for the Patreon post where you can uh, put letters in my mail sack. There we go. Yep. Uh, Club 33. You can put uh, you can put it right in Chase's sack and we will read it on the air. That's how we go. Uh, that's, that, how we that's how we roll. All right. So you ready to get into this Orlando shooting stuff? This is uh, let's wow. do this. Let's uh, for those of you that uh, I've heard from a lot of our audience. This is the show where they get their news. So you may have been. And, you know, I would actually do this. Just. Just wait for our recaps. So that way, you can spare yourself all of the garbage around this thing and the emotional uh, heartstrings they try to pull. There's a lot of pull on this. Yeah, right now. there are. There is. There really. We're going to talk about that in just a second. So why don't we? Why don't we start though with sort of a breakdown of the timeline and everything that happened, just to bring everybody up to the same sort of speed. It is Latin night at the Pulse, a gay nightclub in downtown Orlando, packed with 320 people. And this video of people dancing taken just last night, and then at 2:02 a.m. Bartenders announcing last call when suddenly the gunfire. You could start smelling the ammunition in the air. Like it smelled like fire. Was your instinct to hit the ground? I just wanted to get as low to the floor as I could and try to crawl into safety. As that gunfire erupted, you could hear it from the outside. Oh my God, they're all shooting back and forth. Our officer uh, engaged in a gun battle with that suspect. Uh, the suspect at some point went back in inside the club where more shots were fired. You see people screaming and falling, and there was blood everywhere. The nightclub has three main areas, the hip-hop room, the main bar with the dance floor, and a patio area. Some people escaping out this side door and into this small alleyway. Jean Yale telling me he crawled on the floor, reaching through the curtains to find a sliver of an exit, but that people were climbing over one another to get out. People were jumping over you. People were trying to jump over me, like pushing my head down. Like it's it's a state of panic. Like we just wanted to get out. Another survivor, Joshua, telling us how he hid under an SUV, discovering a survivor who'd been shot in both arms and in the back. He took off his shirt and used it as a tourniquet. I took my shirt off. I tied it as high as I could over the first wound. Um, Second one, I took his shirt, tied it over that one. Um, Thought he was okay. I kind of like held him over like my, his arm over my shoulder and vice versa no ambulance is left police told him to get in the back of the cruiser and to give the man a bear hug 208 a.m and the pulse nightclub posts this on facebook everyone get out of pulse and keep running but inside the frantic scene continues so many looking for the exits others hiding in rooms wow. with no way out i saw him he was so i want to stop here just because it's going to get into a lot of more interviews there so that kind of gives you a breakdown of what happened, when it happened. Uh, it's pretty intense stuff, Chase. Yeah. And uh, always really sad when we have to cover this on this show, the shootings. It's, it's, particularly, it's particularly rough. And one of the things that we, we have to do when we do something like this is we have to keep some level of uh, objectivity so we can watch the news in its entirety. And, and, and watch for the directives and watch for the push. Because, thank you. Yeah, exactly. Because what you got going on here is – First off, and, and I know you guys, a lot of you guys have already seen it on radio and television and on the Internet where you have an agenda on, on each side of it, right? And so we're looking at the facts right now. A gunman went into a nightclub and killed 49 people, possibly more. Yeah, There's still yeah. people in critical condition yeah, right they, now. Yeah. And, and so you have that fact that happened. You have a guy that legally purchased a machine gun. Okay. Fact. 
So so right now you have all these facts that have happened and there's more facts that are we're going to talk about. Yeah, and and there's there's And then you have the debates. There's and and there is some room for those debates. Yeah. And we're going to have those debates with the acknowledgement that there's still a tragedy here regardless of what what some of the implications right. are, what some of the questions we may have are. There's still a, there's still a human tragedy here. Yeah. So I think that's well said, Chase. Uh, and I decided let's start with sort of how the media reacted to this. And uh, this clip actually came from uh, a, a oh, clip far, far away. Uh, it was uh, France 24 that uh, was one of the first sources to break that the shooter had ties to ISIS. We're learning that the Islamic State group on its radio is – Which, by the way, one of the reasons I wanted to play this, not through Rita Katz this time, not through the site intelligence group, which is, oh. if which is, a, which is not normal and has only happened – before, I think, once. So uh, that's a pretty important note is the Islamic State support or hurrah or whatever you want to call it that they gave this guy was actually from their radio station. Their radio station, by the way, is an MP3 stream. That the Islamic State group on its radio MP3 stream is calling the shooter one of the I'm quoting quoting here one of the soldiers of the caliphate in America. What does that tell us? It tells us that at one point or another, he had direct link with, uh, with the Islamic State. So, so let's stop there. Uh, so that was hap- – it happened right away. This came – one of France 24 was one of the first news outlets to cover this. There was also the story around the same time that the call – the shooter called 911. The FBI this morning said investigators are following up about 100 leads in the Orlando investigation. Former CIA Deputy Director Michael Morell is a CBS News senior security contributor, and he joins us now from Washington. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on a very, very sad day. I, I really do believe that uh, CBS News appears to have, just from my observation, more people connected to the CIA on their show than any other of the three major news networks. Yeah. We yes, heard yeah, that the morning. gunman issued... Good morning to you. We heard that the gunman reached out and called 911 and pledged his allegiance during this incident. I want you to talk about how unusual that is and why is it important to know whether it was a directed or inspired attack? What does that mean, that he called during the attack? Gail, I think that's very significant because ISIS tells its followers um, that they must pledge bayat, they must pledge allegiance to ISIS before they die. We saw that in San Bernardino and now we've seen it here. So I think it's very important because it shows that he was in touch with that ISIS messaging. In touch with ISIS messaging. So I want to say this. When I first heard this, the first thoughts I went through my head is how do I – I mean just because someone says it doesn't mean <laughs> that it's true, right? And it's one of those situations where we've we've seen the media so quickly to try to, to pull ties to ISIS – or ISIL immediately, immediately, instantly, without any kind of pull or any kind of proof. And this is one of those situations when I heard this, I was thinking, wait a minute, what if this guy was just saying this to try to push the narrative just to say it? Oh, they have proof. He was radicalized via the Internet chase. So this is Jed Johnson, uh, the uh, guy that runs the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Before we get to the part where he blames the Internet, I want to play the part where he over, over and over, well, he basically... 
He said in many interviews, but in this one, he very clearly states he was not connected to anyone else. The first attack in Orlando opens the door to many questions about our nation's security. Just a short time ago, Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson backed up a classified briefing with House members. Secretary Johnson joins me now. Mr. Secretary, welcome back to Special Report. Thanks for having me, Brett. Good to be back. Latest on this investigation, first of all about the shooter, when did his radicalization begin? Well, the you see how the okay, you see where the conversation starts. Yeah, there's there the the problem. The, what's they're, really they're hard starting to talk, the narrative right off the bat. Investigation first of all about the shooter. When did his radicalization begin? Well, the investigation is um, barely two and a half days old after the attack. It's still an evolving picture. There are lots of law enforcement agents on the ground in Florida investigating every aspect of the shooter's life. I suspect we're going to know a lot more uh, very soon. What we do know at this point, it appears that this was a case of self-radicalization. It was not a terrorist-directed attack, as we say. It was more in the nature of a terrorist-inspired attack. He does not appear to have been part of any group or any cell. And the environment we're in right now is reflected by this horrific Attack. Where so I want to go ahead now. I'm going to, if you guys have the unfiltered sync, you can listen to the whole thing. But I want to jump ahead now to the two minute mark in this clip, right about in the two minute mark where Brett presses him for a little more information and he says, Yeah, it's the internet. And he goes on to more detail. And you picked up on this right away. We knew at the time. Well, what about these videos? Was it the. These videos, a.k.a. YouTube. Videos of the Alaki videos, and he's watching them in 2014, roughly. There is some indication at this point that he self-radicalized based on things he was looking at on the Internet. So that is our grounds for saying that he was self-radicalized and was ple- pledging allegiance. He, wa- he was inspired by ISIS is because he watched some videos on YouTube. The thing that scares the shit out of me about that is you <laughs> could make that, you could make that same claim about me. Because I've watched some of these videos for this show to download the clips for uh, the show. News, newsflash, Chris. Anybody's listening to our show right now. Guess what? You could be accused of the exact same thing. So this is concerning Everybody for me. in our chat room right now, same thing. And, and you're right. You're absolutely right. And this is one of the situations where we watch videos of all types, right? Not just these kind of videos, but we watch videos about you know marijuana production. Or we watch uh, hot videos of, you know, Scarlett Johansson. You know, we, we, we do all these things on the Internet. Doesn't mean we're going to become that. I, 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 I watch I, videos about programming. I'm not a programmer. So if I'm to understand correctly, uh, investigators, remember, he, he emphasized at the beginning of this clip, it's only two and a half days old at this point. And I'm very proud he, of, of him for saying yeah. that, at least. So, but yet, somehow, in that two and a half days, we have gone, ga- gained enough insight from his Chrome history that we know he's been self-radicalized based on the videos that he saw two years ago. And do you think it's a mistake that the highest levels of government are putting that information out there? Absolutely. I mean, they are so careful about what they say because it is an ongoing investigation. How many times have we heard that? Uh This is an ongoing investigation. I can't tell you that information. But yet the information they can tell us is that he watched YouTube videos. We knew at the time. Well, what about these videos? Was it the videos of the Alaki videos and he's watching them in 2014 roughly? There is some indication at this point that he self-radicalized based on things he was looking at on the internet, seeing on social media and on the internet, which is why uh, one of the things that 
<clears throat> we're focused on in Homeland Security is how do we how do we encourage internet service providers to take down prohibited content content that violates the terms of their own service because that's how you solve the problem Whoa, you start wait, blocking wait a minute, stuff wait, yeah. wait a minute yeah. what, what's he, violating the terms of the service on social media and on the internet you're you're publishing why, a dissenting view uh, I, I understand. A lot of people don't like views when it involves, you know, killing Americans. I get that. You don't All get right. to have free speech on the internet, Chase. Shut up. You don't get free speech. Uh, one of the things that uh, we're focused on <clears throat> in Homeland Security is how do we how do we encourage internet service providers to take down prohibited content, content that violates the terms of their own service. They're pretty good about doing this, but it becomes a more and more difficult task as the terrorists become smarter at this. I want to ask more about the specifics, but has the... Wait, wait the stop there for a minute. This is not a matter of smartness of terrorists. He just said that this was on YouTube, okay? It's not exactly rocket scientists to take a video down, especially when it comes to, I don't know, let's look at your content, Chris. How quickly does your content get ripped down off the internet? Before it's even done encoding. Exactly. So what he's saying here is complete bull. So, yeah, uh, I want to play that part again. Take down prohibited content, content that violates the terms of their own service. So uh, a lot of a lot of sites have, you know, no terrorism stuff in their terms of service. So they're pretty good about doing this, but it becomes a more and more difficult task as the terrorists become smarter at this. So when he says it becomes more and more of a difficult task when the terrorists get smarter at this. I think what he's referring to is encryption, and specifically Telegram and encryption applications. Okay, but but so he can't combine arguments when he's talking about but YouTube. He is. He is combining uh. arguments. He's painting it as an entire picture. He's saying the YouTube videos are one problem, and ISIS groups on Telegram are another problem. They're both social platforms, and the providers of those social platforms need to follow their own terms of service. That's all I'm asking for. This is a common sense approach to terrorism, Chase. That's all I'm asking for is that Telegram follows their own terms of service, and it gets more and more tricky as that damn encryption is out there. They're pretty good about doing this, but it becomes a more and more difficult task as the terrorists become smarter at this. Remember, this is the guy that runs the Department of Homeland Security. And so uh, Brett asked the next question that may be on the tip of your mind, audience member. It's more about the specifics, but has the, in the wake of the Apple case and all the back and forth with the federal government... Has in the wake of the Apple case. Has the cooperation from the tech community been hampered? I would rate the cooperation from the tech community to be pretty good. Oh, good. That makes me feel wonderful. On a case-by-case basis, there's a lot that um, we get from the tech community to cooperate in our national security law enforcement good. efforts. Consist- Meet PRISM. Consistent with law, consistent with privacy interest. Shut up, Snowden. Uh, there have been some high-profile disagreements, obviously, but I believe the tech community wants to help, and uh, there are uh, places oh, where they good. definitely have. Oh, good, good, good. So there you go. He's radicalized over the Internet because these uh, these uh, damn social platforms aren't following their own terms of service. And he also made some trips to Saudi Arabia. Remember, we got to villainize Saudi Arabia for everything now. Connections to the Clinton Foundation, bad. Their, their, their shenanigans with oil, bad. The 28 pages on the 9-11 report, bad. Saudi well, Arabia, everybody. Intelligence correspondent Catherine Harridge live now uh, with her reporting in Washington. Catherine, what do you have on the breaking news about Saudi Arabia and other various reports? Everything's about Saudi Arabia these days. Have you noticed this? Uh. I mean, I, these guys, you know what? If there's anybody that could use a little bit of a black eye, it's Saudi Arabia. But I, I'm not trying to, I am not defending Saudi Arabia, but come on. Have you guys noticed this for the last few weeks? 
Well, Bill, this information comes to Fox News from a U.S. intelligence official who confirmed that Would that be a leak? Omar Mateen traveled to Saudi Arabia in 2011 and 2012. One of the things the FBI is doing right now is they're building out a complete picture to nail down that timeline. And travel is a critical component, and this would be a significant piece of that puzzle. Just two hours from now, the FBI director will be briefing reporters here in Washington at FBI headquarters before that. Comey and Nicholas Rasmussen, the head of the National Counterterrorism Center, the nation's hub for threat analysis, will brief President Obama on the status of the investigation and whether evidence points to a more direct tie between the shooter, Mateen, and a foreign terrorist organization. Meantime, federal investigators are following dozens of leads and not ruling out more suspects. So is he tied to a uh, foreign terrorist organization? Uh, and of course, that's the question. Though all of a sudden, before we go too much further, you might have noticed that they stopped really asking that, that particular question and the question changed. Before we get into the new question though, yeah. uh, which is probably on the tip of the audience's mind, I just want to take a quick deviation to the fact – the document, in fact, actually, that this guy had multiple connections to the FBI. And, yeah. and, and one of the things that we have covered on this show is these cases where the FBI works with an informant or sometimes a group of informants to help plan and aid and develop terror plots that then they stop before the terrorist tries to detonate the fake bomb or tries to pull the fake trigger, or calls the fake cell phone number in the case of the, the federal uh, bombing. We've been, we've been talking about these cases where the FBI is, in, you could argue, some people may argue, that is essentially entrapping these people and then saying, look, we've stopped a terrorist. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the FBI in the past has actually worked with this Orlando shooter, shooter in this capacity. In fact, I have a link in the show notes for his, his assistance in be, playing the role of, role of informant in busting a quote-unquote terrorism plot. He's actually been paid $125,000 by the FBI wow. in the past. So he does have some connections to the FBI. We have learned that the gunman, 29-year-old Omar Mateen, had been on the FBI's radar several years ago. In fact, in 2013, the FBI had opened up an investigation into him after his co-workers came to the bureau and said that he was making inflammatory remarks that made them believe that he was tied to terrorism. Ultimately, the FBI did not find any wrongdoing, could not uh, substantiate those remarks that his colleagues said he made, and, and the FBI closed that case. Now, the reason why it might be hard to find out that he has uh, a connection to the FBI is because three years ago, he changed his last name. And if you search based on his last name, you will find the instances in which he's worked with the FBI in Florida in the past. And he for whatever reason, ended up also on the other end of investigations. One could reasonably assume that it was after those investigations, they determined he wasn't guilty and decided maybe perhaps to use him as an informant because he had connections. You, you, that would seem pretty reasonable to me. And then the next year, the FBI interviewed him for a third time in a separate investigation that he was not the subject of. The Three separate investigations. The FBI wanted to see if he was had close ties to an a, American suicide bomber. Ultimately, uh, the FBI said that it didn't find that they had a, a sub substantive relationship, and so the FBI closed that investigation. So after that, uh, essentially the Bureau moved on. Of course, the big question is whether anything was missed. The Bureau has been speaking to family members of this gunman, his ex-wife. What they seem to be focused on is this notion that he did have anti-gay 
abuse. In fact, just recently, uh, the father says that he was upset uh, during an incident in Miami where he saw two men kissing. So it was very evident. Wow. Wow. The fact that they are painting him as anti-gay is 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 really something is really something. In fact, he's not only other sources say his father has openly said, yes, he's a gay man. He's gay. His father has said he is gay. Well, there, there's been stories that I've been reading about where he's visited the club on many occasions. His ex-wife says he has gay tendencies. His current wife has implied that she knows that he goes there for sex and there's some sort of arrangement there. Uh, so it's really there's been an interesting painting by the media here. We have a better idea this morning of who the Orlando gunman Omar Mateen is. But there are questions about why the FBI looked at his background and then didn't act. The 29 year old security guard told his employer that agents questioned him. We're going to talk about more than this in the overtime. But, uh, you know, it turns out he's a security guard for a multinational mercenary mercenary agency that also has like a security guard contractor arm. Did you know that? Yeah, I heard about that. And uh, isn't it interesting that a man who is working for a multinational mercenary company, by the way, one of the dirtiest out there, isn't it interesting that he's employed by this company, even though he's been investigated for terror, he's even been on a terror watch list for 10 months, and yet he manages to land a job at this company? Is that remarkable to anybody but me? That seems remarkable that somebody with such an egregious security past would be a security officer for a company like this. The 29-year-old security guard told his employer that agents questioned him in 2013. The company didn't know the FBI checked him out a second time. We also know Mateen claimed it's actually three times to have ties to several terror groups, not just ISIS. And investigators are trying to figure out if he visited the Pulse nightclub before the attack. <laughs> Former <laughs> FBI senior criminal profiler Mary Ellen O'Toole is here. She spent more than 20 years investigating mass shootings, including the Columbine massacre. Good morning. Good morning. A lot of important questions this morning. One thing that has emerged today is there are now four different witnesses who were regular uh, attendees at the Pulse nightclub that said Mateen had been there on many occasions. What does that suggest about him and his motive? What I like about O'Toole here is uh, she's not read in. She's not part of the establishment. She actually just has legitimately good background experience working for the FBI. So she actually just gives an honest assessment. She's a civilian. Um, (laughs) As part of a mass shooting, especially one that is so well planned, you expect the shooter to surveil the venue before they do that. But what's being described today is is outside the realm of, of surveilling a venue to make sure you pick the right time. Now, the reason why that's important is a lot of media reports, a lot, especially very early on, said that he did... He was very organized. He was a very organized killer, which suggested outside terror connections because he had done multiple right. surveillance of this establishment. He wasn't doing multiple surveillance. He was getting his dick sucked. Is, is outside the realm of, of surveilling a venue to make sure you pick the right time um, and the right group of, of victims. This, to me, suggests somebody that may have had um, sexual identity issues. Mm-hmm. And may have actually been struggling with the idea um, that he himself was gay. And that would add a different motive and a different perspective on the case. But I, I think there's a distinction between surveilling for purposes of completing the shooting successfully yeah, I, and then actually being engaged in, in the activity. It's- yeah, I don't believe he was surveilling either. I, I, I truly believe that he was a patron. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And he was there. And, I mean, re- what... What isn't been reported too much, and we haven't even played a clip about it, was the standoff that happened previous, 
uh, to the to the shooting occurring. You know, I, I have a clip. I'll play it in overtime. Okay. I'll, I'll pull it up and I'll play it in overtime because you're right. There, yeah. there was a stand-up for, I believe, three hours. Yep. And obviously the, the, the standoff went terribly, terribly wrong. But it was one of those situations where I was also thinking about where, you know, he had hostages. There was a standoff. They were talking to him for three hours. Um, I don't know uh, the details of what was going on with the Orlando Police Department SWAT team and, and why they didn't you know, go in at, during that period of time. But obviously, it broke down and the tragedy and massacre occurred, and, which leads to me that if there was a, sta- a standoff, that he wasn't really all in on this. Like, if he was truly all in on this and he was going to be... You know, and, and obviously he did ultimately, you know, kill, you know, 50 people and potentially more. Wouldn't he just start it off with the massacre, right? Just go right after it and kill just do it. Kill as many of those and, bastards as possible. And right? just do it. That would it. be his logic. I'm going right. to teach them a lesson. I'm going to kill as many as I can. I, I mean, and obviously I, there's no way in hell I could ever, and, and many people cannot go into the, side, in the mind of this guy and go, all right, well, here's what I would have done. It's hard to do that. But... If if one was going to commit a massacre, they would just go and do it, right? Why would they have a three-hour standoff? They would just do it. Or, I mean, what's the point of the standoff? This is what I'm trying to say. So the the circumstances of this being a planned attack, I don't know. I mean, yeah. maybe... Maybe he was having second thoughts, and then is, the, it's there's a lot of doubts here. So there's a lot you, of questions. You have done a good job here, Chase, because you have avoided getting caught up with a secondary narrative of think of the victims, and you've been able to critically think about the actual shooting itself. Don't get me wrong, victim side of yeah, it is it's terrible. But I think you've I think terrible. You, I think you've nailed one of the core questions that that. Uh, so you have the questions about his connections with the FBI. Yeah. <clears throat> Obviously, there's connections to possible terrorism stuff. We don't know for sure, but possibly. And but but the thing is, we don't know. Like, Remember, just because also, he watched a YouTube video doesn't. The other tie thing, we're, the thing, the other thing we're not talking a lot about anymore is that nine one one call. We there was that nine one one call. I'm right. So, why haven't? Why hasn't? I, I I imagine it will eventually. Oh yeah. Well, but why hasn't the audio been released of that nine one one call yet? Yeah. I I think I know why. I think the reason, and I, I think there is a nine one one call. I think the reason the 911 call hasn't been released yet is they they want us talking about the victims right now. They want because because you start raising these questions and I'm going to fry a little bacon now. Oh, more some more yeah, bacon. Yeah, I got more I brought a whole bunch into the studio today, buddy. Th- this bacon by the way comes to us from Burian. <laughs> Sorry. Burian. Uh so um I got a few links in the show notes that you just have to trust me are going to back up what I'm about to say, and I encourage you to go look at them. Uh, they're from The Intercept. They're from uh, the, uh, the, uh, the New Yorker and The New York Times. So right. I don't know how you feel about those news sources, but I think, it's, I think they're at least they're worth, they're worth mentioning. All three of them is, have recently, within the last couple of weeks, reported about the FBI working with psych- psych- psychotic people who think that they want to make an impact, and they convince them to do some sort of terrorist activity. And The New Yorker, and I have it linked in the show notes, just ran a story where they had an interview with somebody who said, in almost all of these cases, these guys are five steps away from legitimately being a national security threat. The FBI is so closely managing these cases, you know, they're giving them this, they're yeah. giving them this particular detonator that doesn't happen to work, or they're giving them this cell phone number that doesn't actually go to the right cell phone. It's like they are one mistake away from these guys being an actual national security threat. Now, this guy 
has been an informant of the FBI in the past, been paid $125,000, investigated by the FBI three times. His father is a longtime CIA asset who works for an American propaganda television station, paid, financed by the USDA. What if the FBI picked their patsy and decided to set up another guy? Now, the, the crazy thing about this theory is you could say it's outlandish, except for they've done it to like 86 individuals or something like this now. It's happened before. It's happened a lot. But what if this time things didn't go as planned? What if this time they couldn't properly manage the situation and this guy got in too far? He got real guns. He got, it, he got real angry and he started shooting the place up. Because I'm not saying they give him the motivation and they give him the ideas. I'm saying they give him the nudge. They manage the situation. Right. He's a bad person. All right. And so, so to play off your, your theory here, then the standoff, the three-hour standoff was like maybe in his head trying to convince himself to do it or not. And I think the call to nine eleven or nine one one. Well, that was during the act. I, I think that, that was, was after the standoff. I think he's. I think he was coached to say, "You got to make sure this is a pledge to ISIS. You got to make a statement. The only way you can make that statement is if you make a pledge to ISIS. That'll be you know the people will hear." Uh, and then he, there's so in there's a lot of reports. There's a lot of different reports of, of what happened in between the t- the standoff uh, and when he went back in. But yeah, Chase, it's possible. It's, yeah. I don't know. And and one of the things that's that is. I want to know what happened fully during that standoff. I mean, and we may never know. And, you know, it's one of those situations where, I mean, I don't know if they taped the whole thing or, you know, that's part of their uh, training or whatever, or, you know, they they have dialogue that's been recorded. That that standoff is, I think, vital to a lot of this. The thing the thing that's striking to me is you notice like uh, uh, last last Tuesday. Every single news outlet in the morning ran with the AP's report that Hillary won the election, or that she'd cinched the nomination, right. and they all started reporting superdelegates. Every single news outlet. They all changed on a dime, right? Sometimes you notice that. And one of the things that happened in this case is all of them, every single news outlet, even from ABC to Fox, right, all of them. Meet NPR, I even listened to an NPR report on my way down here. They all changed the narrative to the victims. Just this full-fledged pivot to the victims, and I, I, I just, just to give you one of literally a hundred clips, I will give you what I think was the best pivot to the victims, and that was our good friend and buddy of the show, Mr. Anderson Cooper. Oh my Cooper. gosh, it's Anderson Cooper! There are more than a, a list of names. There are people who loved and were loved. There are people who had families and friends and dreams. And the truth is, we don't know much about some of them. We want you to hear their names and a little bit about who they were. So you can already hear he's starting to crack up and cry a little bit. Uh, and, he, and he begins to cry. Edward Sotomayor Jr. He worked at a travel agency that catered to the gay community. His family says he was witty, charming. And that he always left things better than he found them. He was 34 years old. Stanley Almodovar III. He was a pharmacy technician. He was the last video that we saw of him was posted on social media that showed him laughing and singing on the way to that nightclub. He was just 23. Anderson, uh, I, I listened to this entire clip about five minutes, and he even got me to cry when he started talking about somebody who texted his mom and told him. I mean, the whole it's an extremely, extremely emotional read by Anderson Cooper, where he literally breaks down and starts to cry. Every single news network did this. It was a blitz of think of the victims. Uh, and that to me, 
Now, I remember, I, I go back to the Snowden I, leak, and I, remember when, hold on one second. Okay. Remember during the Snowden leak, right after the Snowden leak, when things started to look really legit, do you remember what they did? Mm. Sort of like in the first few days of the Snowden leak? Mm. They remember. pivoted to his girlfriend, and they all talked about his girlfriend. Remember that? All the pictures of his girlfriend. Do you remember that? No. Really, dude? Uh, I, no, I don't. So they, they, they changed all of them, started talking about his girlfriend for like four or five days instead of talking about the actual Snowden relevation, revelations. This is what they, they – they, in, in order to say they're covering the story, they cover an aspect of it they can all agree upon, and they focus on it. And that's what they've done with the victims because it's legitimate, and it's sad, and it's heart-wrenching. Uh, and it's depressing, and it it wants you to stop this. Right. It makes you want to stop this. It makes you hopefully a little angry. Yeah, but you know the 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 focusing on victims has. And, and by the way, to be clear, it sucks. I mean, fifty people died. Some people reported for an but it, it still sucks. And 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 obviously, I don't want to del- belittle any of the of the victims at all in this and i, I want to be abundantly clear and I, I don't want to speak for you either chris but i know you don't want to belittle that either i mean it sucks totally sucks but this is something that the media has done before this before columbine going back way before snowden way before clinton bush reagan this is this has always been a standard thing where and it's a cycle where all right we're going to reflect and mourn. It's a mourning period, really. You know, we're going to reflect and mourn on the victims and then move on from you that. You know, there's always been that. There's way. vigils with 10,000 people uh, held in Seattle, all over. The, like, there's all these vigils that are being organized and held all over the country right now. And uh, the politicians are all in. There is, a, there is an anti gun movement building like no other shooting. I thought, you know, I thought it'd be Sandy Hook that would have done it, but this is really something. The fierce political battle over the Orlando attack is also flaring in Congress. But today, the top Republican in the Senate signaled he might be willing to consider new gun control measures after meeting with the heads of the FBI and Homeland Security tomorrow. NBC's Peter Alexander has details. Less than 48 hours after the Orlando massacre, a moment of silence quickly erupting into protests. This convicting act of 1991... Democrats demanding new gun laws. Three lawmakers walking off the House floor. In fact, I think there's still a filibuster happening right now. Do you know if that's still happening as well? Well, the irony, I, I don't know if it's still happening, but the irony is the filibuster is being performed by a Democrat uh, who uh, thought uh, when a Republican was doing the filibustering was a, yeah. a, a political stage, and now he's the one doing it. So, yeah. He's, I, it wouldn't be surprised if we see him somewhere pop up in the 2016 race, honestly. <laughs> we can't just have moments of silence when we see American lives perish. The latest mass shooting reigniting calls for a no-fly, no-buy law. That oh, no-fly, no-buy! We got a new term, and it's gonna stick. Would bar people suspected of terrorist activities already banned from boarding a plane from buying a gun, too? Man, they are... They are pumping this one, aren't they? Aren't they pumping this one? No fly, no buy. If you're on the no fly list, there's no reason you should be oh, buying and, a gun. And by the way, you have no idea if you're on the list or you know how to get off the list or there's no link Isn't you can click. Isn't it interesting how there's, all of a sudden— The problem is there's no due process. This list has—this is a mystery list, how you get on it, how you get off it. There, We have played stories about people that have been stuck on the list. Yeah, because of misidentities— and all of a sudden, they're not talking about that. No. They're, they're just championing this no-fly, no-buy. This no-fly list cannot turn into this. All right, so let me ask you this. If there was due process— This is unconstitutional. All right, and I know. Let me ask you this. If there was due process, and there was transparency, and there was a clear you know, yeah, procedure— Yeah, I'd be fine with it then. Fine. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's reasonable if it's yeah. a legitimate threat. Right. And from buying a gun, too. 
This afternoon, House Democrats' efforts to force a vote on the contentious issue going nowhere. So uh, Kits and Kitty, who is a longtime uh, chat person and who who participates in many of our shows, has been uh, a very nice fellow, says that he's on the no-fly list because of environmental labor activism. Legal. Legal activism. On the contentious issue going nowhere. The leading Senate Republican today saying he'd consider new ideas. Now this... For, for, for Mitch to be doing this, I, I, I think this is new. Nobody wants terrorists to have firearms. We're open to serious suggestions from the experts. According to the FBI, That's more huge. than 200 people on a terrorist watch list legally bought guns from federally licensed dealers in 2010. Orlando shooting was by not the on way, that list. And, and by the way, here's another thing that I, I kind of popped in my head. So this Orlando, Orlando shooter had ties with the FBI, was obviously investigated by the FBI, was in the system, so to speak, right? So, yeah, he could legally go and buy this AR-15, which he did. He bought it legally. Why couldn't it be, I don't know, a signal or a, a ping to the FBI go, by the way, this guy just bought a gun? Yeah, without making a single effing change right now. Because all could, those damn forms you fill out, guess where those go? To the federal government. Yeah. Right? And they've got a list already with their, they could write a damn they get, a, they, they, get a push, do this. they get a push notification to the local agent bureau, and they're like, oh, this guy just bought a gun. Maybe we should reinvestigate yeah. this guy again. I feel like your your random D-bag on Reddit could make an Android app that that does the merging of this database yeah. and re- spits out reports uh, in, in a half a day. This is this is information and that's they not already illegal. have. And that's not illegal. And besides, it, and, it's, and it's not spying because these people are actively looking to pursue and purchase a weapon, which they have to fill out the paperwork for anyway. So they must recognize and know this. They must know this. So why is that not what they just do? Because the ultimate goal, perhaps, from our federal government and and leaders, if you want to call them leaders, is to be more restrictive and take liberties away. Well, along those notes, I think this is maybe the scariest uh, thing I've heard in this entire thing. And by the way, you know, it's interesting. I don't don't own a gun. uh, Well, I technically do, but I don't have it here. It's a... I uh, when I was a kid, I had twenty two rifle engraved yep. with my initials. My dad gave it to me. You know, it was one of those things. Uh, I don't have a dog in this hunt. Um, I have family members who own guns. I have family members who don't. I don't. I don't plan on buying a gun. See, I don't. I'm not a gun activist. I mean, and, I don't, and, and I don't neither really am I. Be- and, and here's the thing: I respect both sides of the equation here. Okay, do I believe that uh, you have the right? To, to own a gun? Absolutely. It is your Second Amendment right to do so, okay? Do you need to— Actually, it's not really my Second Amendment right. What the Second Amendment says is that they cannot infringe upon my God-given right. So what it essentially says is it's not that they are granting me the right to own a gun. It is that they are not allowed to infringe upon my natural-born given right. right to have governance over myself right. in that capacity. Right. Um do should you be able to have an AR15? I I don't know. But it, but it, but it's one of those situations where people that are law, and this is the argument that goes back and forth. Law-abiding citizens are 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 not the ones going out and killing people, right? Well, this guy was a law-abiding citizen, right? In theory, I mean, he did he have a uh, previous record? I, I don't know. It's I, very possible he even was I I mean, I I've seen some of the pictures it appears he was issued a firearm for his day-to-day job. Right. This is one of those things where even even yeah. with the strictest gun laws, cops and security guards would still have guns. Right. 
And and, and, and and so here's what I don't – so I want to make it clear to our audience. I don't have a dog in this hunt. What I have a dog in a hunt – the particular hunt my dog is in is when I smell a con and bullshit. And I don't care what it's about. Yeah. If I, if I smell some bullshit, I'm going to yeah. tell you guys about it. Right. So this and, is – And, you know, what do I always say on the show? Besides, uh, besides uh, hand me my back scratcher, yeah. you often say, show me the money. Show me the money! And, you know, you, you look at the, the gun lobby, you, you look at the ammo lobby, you look at the manufacturing lobby, and look at, look at their stocks. Just, just go right now, go to Google, go to Bing, and look at the stock value of these gun companies. And then also look at how much money that they put into politics and into lobby groups. The, that's the kind of situation where, like, they don't want to see guns restricted because it hurts their bottom line. Yeah, I'm not saying there's good guys or bad guys right. in this fight, but you know what does freak me out? I mean, really, because I feel like it is a massive shift in the conversation, and it could fundamentally represent a realignment of the entire of the entire federal government. Your buddy. My good friend. Jeff Johnson, the head of the Department of hey. Homeland Security, as you heard in our intro clip, says that gun control is now a national security issue. Plotting. Um, Jim Comey has said that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of open investigations at any one time. The FBI is very good at what they do. They are very aggressive in what they do. Yeah, I they have are. a lot of confidence in the FBI because routinely they are investigating, interdicting, and taking down terrorist plots to our homeland. You know, but routinely, uh, it's, what is the word he used? He used a very clever word. He, what would he say here? He, uh, interdicting? What did he say? Investigating, interdicting. And- interdicting. They are interdicting into the plots. Interdicting. Routinely, they are investigating, interdicting, and taking down terrorist plots. Interdicting. Uh, I will link to the articles in the show notes, but interdicting, I, I want to be clear with you guys means everything from facilitating transportation to the destination they plan to attack. FBI informants are literally driving them from their home to the destination, facilitating funds, in some cases hundreds of thousands of dollars, facilitating actual explosives to bomb a, uh, a, a federal building, uh, to supplying uh, planning, motivation, prompting, all of that. By FBI informants. So when he says the word interdicting, that's a real great uh, newspeak term for all of what I just said. He's encapsulating everything that I just said that the FBI does to crack these terrorism cases. Right. And I, I think it's, it's, it's important to stress, and I know most of you guys know this, but these cases are – these guys are kind of on the edge a little bit. They're not maybe super sound. Maybe the things have been not good for them financially and economically. So you know they're not in great positions, but they're also – they're not great. They don't have great dispositions for the United States of America, but they're also they are not necessarily in a position to do anything about it. And what comes along is a friend. And that friend gives them the motivation or a little bit of money or some transportation, gives them the edge they need to finally do that thing they would love to do. And that's what interdiction is here. And I think we need to fully understand how this works. It's a massive, massive thing that's happening. Well, but why would they? So, uh, do you think they're they're pushing the interdiction to push the agenda? Or I mean, why would you I, want I, to I, do I that? I feel like I feel like I don't have enough information to speculate. My only my only thought is it's it's pre crime. Is it, it is they think they have discovered or entrapment? You mean? Well, I think they have discovered a legitimate means of. Okay, so I think at some point after nine eleven. I feel like they decided this can never happen again. And when that mandate came down, 
They had to come up with a way to prevent it from happening. And so what, if you have to crack a few eggs to get a great omelet, that's the cost. There are acceptable costs. You maybe, you maybe a few guys go into jail, but you know what? They're pretty fucked up individuals already, so screw those guys. And we just need to fill the uh, you know, prison private complex, get more people in there. So um, this is a massive component to this. And, and this man who, would, who was involved in the Orlando shooting was wrapped up in all of this. Our- investigating, interdicting, and taking down terrorist plots to our homeland. Um, <clears throat> I don't think anybody dropped continue. the ball here. James Comey was saying it's like looking for a needle in a very large haystack. A needle- you know, it's funny, that argument, right? Because we always this hear that. This is not a needle in a haystack because he was on the radar before. So we always hear after the Boston bombing or uh, the San Bernardino shooting or now this – well, you know, we have this great surveillance network. We have we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of FBI agents in every single state doing active ISIS investigations. But you know, guys, it's a goddamn needle in a haystack. How the hell could we actually but ever get the job done? This wasn't a needle in a haystack. Needle in a very large haystack. It's a very large haystack. But Chase. this wasn't a, a needle in a haystack, right? Because he was on a list already. The haystack. He was on a list of 200 plus names. 275 names. 275 and they, names. And, I they, and, the and they decided, yeah, we don't need to keep looking at them anymore. It's not a needle in a haystack. No, it's, it's not. So you're telling me the world's largest federal investigations bureau. Nobody, look at that. Look how big Chris, the FBI Chris, is. They don't have enough money. You're telling me they couldn't. Uh, 200, 275 is is a ginormous needle in a haystack. Looking for a needle in a very large haystack, a Gale. nationwide haystack, he called it. But he said they'd look at it again. Didn't and they would look at the Orlando it shooter was interviewed three times. He was thoroughly investigated based upon what we knew at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> there was no. <clears throat> you notice he does that a lot? <clears throat> it's early to pursue based on what we knew at the time. But it does raise a question again about gun control. I- oh, does it? No, does it doesn't. It? How, how do you No, you? It doesn't pivot that. I keep wondering what it's going to take. I was on the plane from Orlando, and it was so interesting, Secretary Johnson. Oh, here we go, because, you know, Gail went on location. By the way, you know, because I was down there. The, uh, the full clip the full clip of this is in the show notes. I'm just going to say something, just because right. I, I always rag on Gail. Uh, I, you know what? I think it's interesting. I think she's actually the best reporter of the three of them. <laughs> I'm no disrespect to, yeah, disrespect to Charlie Rose, but here's what I've noticed about Gail. Gail's just there to do a great job. Charlie... And Nora, they want to show how smart they are. And neither one of them in this interview are listening. And in fact, if you go in the supporter sync and you play the entire clip, they're all talking over each other because Nora did some research before the show and she wants to drop the number that she knows. And Charlie wants to get just this specific answer so much so that they run over Jeff and his statement and he has to restate it. So what what I'm about to play to you is the first time he says this on air and nobody noticed because Charlie and Nora are so busy trying to prove how smart they are. Nobody noticed that he said this and then he said it again. (laughs) On one hand, you had a family coming from Disney World, all excited with their Mickey Mouse ears. In another seat, there was a man who had just been at the club. He told me he left at 1.36 right before the shooting started. He was still basically in shock. And it just raised the question about here, you're the happiest place on earth, Orlando. And then in the, and within a 24-hour period, you have two terrible shootings. What will it take to move the needle when it comes to gun control? People thought it would be... Another needle analogy. And not the same needle analogy. Now we're talking about the needle a on gauge. an analog dial yeah. that nobody even really uses anymore. I love it. And so we got so many needle references in this thing when we're talking to Jeff. I feel like I'm being needled to death here. <laughs> People thought it would be Sandy Hook. Well, you're asking me about gun control. Yes. Um, 
I am uh, this is the talking point I prepared for. Not anxious to uh, plunge into yet another difficult, contentious issue like the ones I already have. Mm-hmm. I do believe, however, that meaningful, responsible gun control. See how Charlie's pointing at him? Charlie's not even listening right now. Neither is Nora. Uh, is now part and parcel of Homeland Security. Part and parcel of Homeland Security. Meaningful, responsible gun control is now part and parcel of Homeland Security. He literally will say that three to four times in this interview. I won't play all of it, but that's obviously he's just there to hit that point. And then he says it later in a Fox interview with Brett. It's critical to public safety, but we have to face the fact that meaningful, responsible gun control has to be part of Homeland Security as well, given the prospect of homegrown, homeborn, violent extremism in this country. We've seen this now with Orlando, tragically, with San Bernardino. And it's something that I think the American public and the Congress has to face and has to address. And if they're on a watch list, should they be able to buy an assault weapon? Well, a number of people have made the point that there are individuals who... You know what's interesting about that response right there? A number of people have made the point... Well, I'm going to play it in the overtime, but that's how Donald Trump answers questions. A lot of people are saying that Hillary Clinton is corrupt. A lot of people are saying that. But yet when when Jess says it in a nice uh, domicile tone like that, a very serious CBS morning tone, then all of a sudden it's totally fine. There are individuals who are on our no-fly list, who are on various other lists, who are able to purchase a weapon in this country. I believe that that's something that has to be addressed. I think that those of us in the executive branch and in the legislative branch have to face this. With great respect, Mr. Secretary, you are head of Homeland Security. What do you think? I believe that meaningful, responsible gun control is part of Homeland Security, and it's something we have to address. I think that's a big shift. I think that if that is true, if the Department of Homeland Security is saying gun control is now a Homeland Security issue... I think that changes the discussion a lot. Did you see, too, that the uh, they got into the guy's apartment? This, I could not believe. Univision News reported details of Omar Mateen's home, saying the news outlet visited the home in Fort Pierce, Florida, on Monday, when it was unoccupied. It was the morning after the FBI swept the apartment for evidence. So the FBI goes in there, sweeps it for evidence in a few hours, leaves, doesn't put any tape up, doesn't put any barricades so, up, so, doesn't lock so, the door, so, doesn't lock so the door. What, they can, uh, someone can just go into an apartment? And the outlet says the home was unlocked and not yet sealed off by... So, you know, it's not locked. Crime so you can tape. go in? Family photos, drawings, blackboard messages, a Quran, and books on Islam decorate the shooter's apartment. Mateen lived there with his second wife, Noor Salman. The report describes a blackboard message in the kitchen with an appointment at their three-year-old son's school and a note with an Arabic phrase praising God. Univision says that on the living room table was a document listing items investigators removed. You know, it's weird. I got pictures in the show notes if you guys are like that. So uh, they can just walk into someone's apartment? Yeah, apparently. What? The, the dude, uh, If you, know, you, you hear all this stuff about this man, and uh, he, he's worked up to be this huge, huge, larger-than-life person. And yet, when you go look at those pictures, you realize that uh, when he took a piss, he was standing on Darth Vader's helmet. Like the mat in his bathroom, he has a Vader. They have a, they have a Star Wars-themed bathroom. He's got a Star Wars shower curtain. His bath mat is a Darth Vader helmet. Uh, Star Wars towels. I mean, it's just an everyday person. Uh, so it's, it's really, yeah, and they just busted in there, Chase. They just busted in there and took pictures of it. Uh, totally destroying yet another 
crime scene, just like the last mass shooting. Man. Uh, all right. So while we're talking about terrorism, we should probably talk about Afghanistan. Now, Barack Obama has reportedly approved broadening the role of U.S. troops in Afghanistan, a decision that once again contradicts his promises to end America's war in the country. Uh, we would consider a train and mission that would extend beyond 2014. America's war in Afghanistan will come to a responsible end. And by the end of this year, the transition will be complete and Afghans will take full responsibility for their security and our combat mission will be over. Almost 10,000 U.S. troops are still in Afghanistan. The original plan called to withdraw all soldiers except those based in the U.S. Embassy by the end of this year. But under the new extent of mission next year, 5,500 troops will still be stationed in the country. Oh! To discuss this, let's now cross live to a political journalist. I think it's all you really need to know. So uh, there you go, Chase. That's our drawdown. 5,500 troops will be present. We're just going really slowly. Plus the embassy. Plus the embassy. The the million-dollar embassy. So there's this really interesting controversy at the State Department around an edit around uh, the Iran video when when the State Department was asked. Yeah, we talked about that last, exactly, last show. Exactly. So they were going to drop it. They uh, Kirby came out and said, you know what? We looked into it. There was no policy against editing out our videos. And so since no rules were broken, uh, we're good. We're good. <laughs> Turns out, since the last show that we did talking about that, somebody has decided that's not the case. Welcome back. Just about quarter past the hour. The State Department now changing course, deciding to relaunch an investigation into how more than eight minutes of an interview with our Fox News reporter James Rosen about secret Iran talks was intentionally cut from the record. Patricia Stark is here with the latest developments. Patricia, what's happening? Well, good morning, Heather and Heather. A surprise about face from the State Department this morning, making the decision to dig a little bit deeper into who is responsible for editing some controversial exchanges out of a 2013 briefing. The questions from Fox News's James Rosen centered around the nuclear deal between the White House and Iran and whether or not U.S. citizens were deceived. Is it the policy of the State Department where the preservation of the secrecy of secret negotiations are concer- is concerned to lie in order to achieve that goal? Uh, James, I think uh, there are times where diplomacy needs uh, privacy in order to progress. This is a good example of that. All public affairs officials deny ordering the edits. Just late last week, the State Department first called it a glitch, then admitted it was intentional, but had no way of finding out how it happened and considered the matter closed. Well, now they're feeling the pressure for accountability. We've remedied that going forward so that will never happen again. Mm -hmm. The fact was that uh, as um, unfortunate as this incident was, it didn't break any uh, known regulations or policies. Given... Uh, Secretary's strong interest, given... Uh, comp- Secretaries. In other words, for some reason, John Kerry was sitting around watching the news and decided, uh, not good enough. You guys, some reason, for some reason, John Kerry decided to bring down the hammer and say, look into this. Given uh, Congress's strong interest and given the media's strong interest, uh, we've decided to continue to look at that. What if it's Hillary? Oh, man. Well, since the State Department claims no rules were broken and new rules are now in place, it's hard to see any disciplinary action coming from this new investigation, even if they solve the mystery of just how it happened. Heather and Heather. All right. So in other words, even if it is Hillary, nothing's going to happen. Speaking of Hillary, uh, did you hear this story that Google is skewing results in her favor? Yeah. I'll play a little bit of this. Yeah. 
There is a new report suggesting Google is censoring its search results. The search engine reportedly provides different, more positive autocomplete results for Hillary Clinton than other search engines. Why would that be? Do you think this is a true story? Uh, breaking news, Chris. Uh, Hillary is talking uh, with Eric Schmidt and uh, getting the uh, search results. You know, there's a possibility, but you know, the thing about this is you can't, when you go to do this kind of thing about Google, you can't just go do a Google search and then report on it. You have to understand there's so much that goes into customizing Google searches. Google's trying to guess, uh, suss out your intent. It's a logarithm. Yeah. Uh, Just use Bing. (laughs) I just use DuckDuckGo. Is it possible? You know, you look at how many times, uh, it's obvious that Google is in tight with the Obama administration, ergo, it would make sense they'd be tight with the Clinton administration. Is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? Uh, no, I don't think so. However, we do have some... Oh, do you have any more thoughts well, on Well, I was going to say, what's Google's slogan? Do no evil, right? So, Not anymore, uh, actually. Oh, it's, They actually legitimately changed it a couple years ago. Oh, fair enough. Because <laughs> I think they decided... We eh. want to be evil a little bit. <laughs> That's their new slogan. Google, so, um, we want to be evil a little bit. Turns out those non-classified emails that Hillary had that yeah. uh, were never marked classified when she uh, re- received them... Yeah, on her on her server in her closet. Turns out some of them discussed drone strikes. <gasps> this oh. could be bad. Well, John, we're talking about the email investigation into Hillary Clinton's private server and emails that date back to Christmas, Christmas time in 2011. At the time, the U.S. ambassador in Islamabad, uh, Cameron Munter, and other State Department officials were discussing a planned CIA drone strike in Pakistan. And they were using oblique wow. terms, but according to officials I've, talk- I've talked to, uh, it's clear that they're just... Dis- he almost said toked right there. According to officials I've talked with, I mean talked to. Do you hear that? Did you hear- Listen. Officials I've talked I've talked to. <laughs> Did you hear it? Chase? I, to- I talked. I think it, I think like a good reporter. He's I getting, talked with. He's getting official stone and he's getting the information from him. Not Official. a bad idea. Actually. Yeah, right. Right. I've talked. I've talked to. Uh, it's clear that they're discussing the CIA drone program. Now these e- emails began in the State Department's unclassified email system, but but some eventually were forwarded to Hillary Clinton's private email server, which is why they're being investigated. Damn email chains. Now, the Wall Street Journal, uh, which first reported the story, said that this is the focus of the FBI investigation, which is still ongoing. And I'm told it's one of only one of several of the emails that are at the center of this investigation. Oh, so we got these possible drone strike emails. That seems like a bad thing. Uh, and, uh, of course, there was that whole issue around this donor situation. new batch of Clinton emails out this morning is raising questions about a donor to the Clinton Foundation and how he ended up on a government intelligence advisory board. Look at this guy, Chase. Look at this guy. <laughs> Look at that face. Um, so this guy right here, big, 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 big fundraiser for uh, Bill and Hill. Uh, big supporter of the foundation. Real, real buddy. No freaking experience at all. No reason to be on the intelligence board. In fact, as soon as it gets discovered, like a House of Cards episode, it falls apart. Ended up on a government intelligence advisory board. ABC's Brian Ross is here with more on that story. Good morning, Brian. Well, good morning, Amy. The newly released State Department emails being made public here this morning reveal how Under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, a major donor to the Clinton Foundation, was put on a sensitive government security advisory board, even though he had no known experience in the area. Members of the State Department's International Security Advisory Board include some of the country's most prominent figures on American nuclear strategy, all with top-secret clearances. 
But in 2011, the Clinton State Department also added this man, Rajiv Fernando, a wealthy Chicago commodities broker with no known connection to the national security world. I'd like to invite to the stage Raj Fernando. What he was known for before and after his appointment was raising and giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to Democratic campaigns and as much as $250,000 to the Clinton Foundation. ABC News, you have just a second to talk here. When we approached Fernando at the 2012 Democratic Convention... How did you get appointed to that board? Can you talk about that? How do you know my name, out of curiosity? He became upset, and we were threatened with arrest. But now the new set of State Department emails, obtained after a lawsuit brought by Citizens United, reveals the role of Clinton Chief of Staff Cheryl Mills in appointing the big donor, with a senior career official using the shorthand S, a common reference to Secretary Clinton. I like that. They called her S, Chase. They called her S. That's, we should just call her S, except for I like Hill Dog better. Uh, well, the true President answer is Hill simply soon, right? that S staff, Cheryl Mills, added him. Raj was not on the list sent to S. He was added at their insistence. I don't know who will be giving money. At her confirmation hearing, Clinton vowed foundation donors would not receive special treatment. No. That will not influence. No. It will not be in the atmosphere. No, not the, the new atmosphere. Clinton emails also show that when ABC began asking questions about the appointment of Fernando in 2011, top Clinton aide Cheryl Mills asked the press officer to stall for 24 hours. This is where the House of Cards thing like totally. So they say, hold on. Uh, so could, you could stall, if, stall, if, stall. If, stall. If, you watch a House of Cards, they'll always tell the press secretary, you got to stall them, got to stall them. Ask the press officer to stall for 24 hours. The very next day, Fernando submitted his resignation from the prestigious board. The Clinton campaign declined to comment oh. on our story, and what? the State Department said it's not unusual for the secretary's chief of staff to play a role. As for Fernando, he has continued to raise big dollars for the Clinton campaign and has given more than a million dollars oh. to the Clinton Foundation. In fact, he'll be one of her superdelegates at next month's convention. Oh, he's going to be one of the superdelegates. <laughs> isn't Whoa. that convenient? Wait, he, he got to be a superdelegate? <laughs> yeah, man, isn't that great? Just, all it takes is just to be a big donor. That's all it takes, the superdelegates. Uh, oh, man. So, but, uh, Hey, but money's not involved. We do have a bit of a, uh, we do have a, bit of a development in the Hillary Clinton email investigation. You know, until this we point, we need to stop talking about her emails, Chris. Her damn emails. Her damn emails. Boy, he's got to regret that. You know, but we've called this a security review. That's what Hillary's called it for a long time. This week, however, the White House referred to it as a criminal investigation. The White House, for the first time, apparently admitting that the FBI investigation into Mrs. Clinton is a, quote, criminal investigation. Now, the apparent admission coming after James Rosen pressed the White House press secretary on whether the president's endorsement of Mrs. Clinton could impact the investigation. Here's part of that exchange. I said, I think I implied this in our uh, live coverage last uh, Tuesday. I said, you know, now that she's, quote, unquote, cinched. The nomination. Right. Uh, she's also just solved her problem with the FBI investigation. And then the next day, Barry comes out and endorses Hillary. Yeah. The, the president of the United States is now campaigning for Hillary. We're going to talk more about that later. But uh, that, to me, feels like a pretty much a message to the FBI. You go off with your go away with a little investigation. You don't think that that career prosecutor or that FBI agent takes that as some indication of how the president wants to see this case resolved? Those career prosecutors understand that they have a job to do. And it, that job that they are supposed to do, which is to follow the facts, to pursue the evidence uh, to a logical conclusion, that that is a job that they are responsible for doing 
without any sort of political interference. And the president expects him to do that job. Joining me now from the White House, we can stop Washington there. correspondent James Rosen. Thanks, James. So James Thanks, pressed buddy. him, and he said, "Yeah, it's a, and he said, yeah, it's a criminal investigation." Uh, I think that's uh, I think that matters yeah, when you refer to the words criminal. And that's why the president, when discussing this issue in each stage, uh, has reiterated his commitment to this principle that any criminal investigation should be conducted in the, uh, independent of any sort of political interference. So you go. Uh, that actually does. Is, well, any he's being in general, I know, any criminal. I know. But it's the first time they've called it criminal. Yeah, fair enough. You were kind of referring to this earlier. Speaking of uh, Hillary and Bernie, uh, they met. Yeah, today they, I think they, it was. They had lunch. Clinton and did. Bernie Sanders also met face to face last night after Clinton wrapped up primary season with season rather with a. So, you know, okay, not to do this, but you know, you see, this, this keeps happening in the media. So you had a token. Earlier, and now she just said sleazy after saying Clinton. Seasoned rather with a. Oh, hold on, let me back up a little bit. She says sleazy. Listen. Primary sleazy with sleazy. <laughs> sleazy she primary. A little tired. Uh, no, I think what it is is in the back of her mind she knows Clinton did some shenanigans, some sleazy shenanigans. <laughs> uh, fair enough. <laughs> All right, I don't know. Sleazy with seasoned rather with a victory in Washington D.C. The 90-minute private meeting just blocks from the White House was expected to focus on unifying the party and stopping Donald Trump. That's another way of saying Bernie getting out of the party, right? Or getting, I'm sorry, getting out of the race. Uh, Unifying the party is code for Bernie getting out. Trump, but Sanders still has not endorsed Clinton. He says he's looking to advance his progressive agenda and transform the Democratic Party. I got to hold out just in case she's arrested. No, well, see, that's what I was wondering is if that's what he's doing. But now that I heard that, listen, you don't chase yeah. Look. Yeah. Look. Look. You don't go have a meeting like this and then Bernie hold a Bernie's not going to walk out of this thing and hold a press conference and say, "All right, thanks for all the fish. I'm out." That's not how it works because that all then that would put all of the heat on Hillary from his supporters. Hillary pressured him out. It's got to it's got to take a little while so that oh, way yeah, course, Hillary yeah. can convince his supporters to come over and they'll do it willingly. If it happened right after a meeting, it would piss off Bernie's supporters. Or She's like, all right, listen, I'm going to make you VP. What do you think? I, w- I will give you, I don't know about VP, I don't think so, but I, I will give you there was some deal cut. Oh, yeah. There did has you know, to be. Did you know, that, did you know? Like Debbie Wasserman Schultz is out, you know, some other concessions. Oh, maybe, yeah. yeah. Did you know that the Sanders have pictures signed by the Clintons that were sent to them over the holidays oh. hanging in their living room? Well, they were probably just on a mailing list. Yeah, they just have they have they have framed they have they have uh, cards and notes sent yeah. to them by the Clintons for the holidays when yeah. Bill was in office. Yeah, and other times they were signed by Hillary and Bill. Yeah. They framed those and and hung them up on the wall. Well, why wouldn't you, if I got it, personally if well actually Bill does send me a greeting card every every Christmas, but you know if I got one. I would frame it too and put it up. I'm just saying, I, I, I don't think Bernie. I don't think Bernie actually despises Hillary. I think one of the reasons he's kind of kept the gloves on during this entire fight is because I think he has a lot of respect for Hillary. So I don't oh, think yeah, it's. Totally. I don't. I don't think it's unreasonable for him to come to some sort of deal with her. No, I don't, I don't think so either. I don't think. I just don't think it can happen right away after this meeting. Oh, absolutely not. No, it would definitely send the wrong message. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah, totally. Okay, so we got to talk a little bit about Trump, just really quickly. Uh, boy, he's been getting. Punched. We almost got through. Yeah, almost. He's been getting uh, hit, as they say. Or, or punched or whatever uh, by uh, by Bernie. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah, by Bernie too, actually. Yeah, yeah. But really, by uh, Hillary and uh, Obama, sort of in sync. Now to the political fight that has erupted in the wake of this tragedy. Donald Trump pressing his call for a Muslim immigration ban, even though that would not have stopped this attack. The gunman was an American-born citizen. 
And today, President Obama laid into Trump like never before, blasting his language as dangerous. Tonight, Trump is hitting back. We have it all covered, starting with NBC's Kristen Welker. Kristen, rarely have we seen the president that angry. That's right, Lester. And today, President Obama and Hillary Clinton were in sync. The two had postponed their first joint campaign event set for tomorrow. But in a lot of ways, it felt like they were already out on the trail together. Of immigrants charged After Donald Trump called for expanding his Muslim ban, President Obama lashing out today like never before. Never before! Where does this stop? Are we going to start treating all Muslim Americans differently? A speech billed as an update on the fight against ISIS turned into a tirade against Trump. The president didn't hide the fact that Trump is getting under his skin, citing Trump's digs at Mr. Obama for refusing to talk about radical Islam. Islamic radicalism, and that's a very, very important term. Very important. A term that the president refuses to use. Mm. The president answering. It's a political talking point. Oh. And if we fall into the trap of painting all Muslims with a broad brush. Like me. And imply that we are at war with an entire religion. My religion. Then we are doing the terrorist work for them. The sharp rebuke coming at almost the same time as Hillary Clinton delivered her own shots today. You know, they almost spell it out for you here in this clip, but they are heavily implying they're about to. They're about to heavily imply in this clip that somebody is writing for both Obama and Hillary at the same time. Imagine that for a second. What if the president's speechwriter is also writing for Hillary or the, or one of Hillary's writers is also writing for Obama? Let's imagine the latter for a little bit longer. What if... One of Hillary's speechwriters is also writing Obama's speeches on this. They, they, they sync up. They don't really – they could go they – they could have literally synced them word for word, but they didn't do it in this clip. They actually do it for one moment, but they don't play the audio where Hillary and Obama are saying the same exact words at the same time. It's really something. Wow. They give you a little hint here. Almost the same time as Hillary Clinton delivered her own shots today, at times sounding like they were reading from the same script. So there's no magic to the phrase radical Islam. Is Donald Trump suggesting that there are magic words that once uttered will stop terrorists from coming after us? Clinton also defending her former boss after this Trump suggestion about the president's reaction to the Orlando attack. Well, there are a lot of people that think maybe he doesn't want to get it. A lot of people think maybe he doesn't want to know about it. A lot of people, just like Jack. A lot of people. A lot of people think this. A lot of people are saying this. It's not just me saying this. A lot of people. A lot of people. Maybe he doesn't want to know about it. He went on TV and suggested that President Obama is on the side of the terrorists. You know, her people have got to work on audio. They have got to work on audio. She does not sound good with the sound system. And I don't know if you noticed, uh, but during her uh, her uh, acceptance speech, if you want to call it, last Tuesday, the audio was screwed up for like the first 30 oh, seconds. Really? It I was, wasn't wow. No, it was super bad. Her, her team is known for really working on this stuff, and yet Trump's camp's doing better than hers now. Is on the side of the terrorists. The tag team, a preview of the onslaught Trump is facing in the fall. Tag team. Having them on the same side, on the same team, and very much in sync in terms of messaging gives the Democratic side a one-two punch. Kristen Welker, NBC News. That's the uh, clip right there. They don't really fully play, but you kind of get the feel for it. Uh, that's a creepy. That's a creepy thought in my book. So there's a, there's so Trump is looking forward to a one-two punch from uh, Barry and uh, Clinton, 
Uh, now, <laughs> I got a curveball for you. I think there's, there's got to be almost no chance you heard about this. But I don't know. Every now and then, you, you really surprise me, Mr. Chase. Yes. Did you hear who Romney's endorsing or potentially endorsing? No, I haven't. Do you have a guess? Who do you think? Gary Johnson. Good guess. And this third-party libertarian candidate, uh, the former New Mexico governor, Gary Johnson, would you consider supporting him? Well, I'm, I'm going to look at what he has to say. Uh, his running mate, Bill Weld, is someone who I respect enormously. So that right there tells you that Mitt was prepared for this question, and Mitt is going to bridge the logical gap between abandoning the Republican Party and going behind pot-smoking Gary Johnson, as he's labeled. And how does he bridge that logical gap? Because it turns out there's a good old boy running as Gary's mate. Well, to someone who I respect enormously. Former Republican governor of Massachusetts. Exactly. And he was a, a fine governor, a fine friend, a supporter of mine, both in 2008 and 2012. Uh, if Bill Weld were at the top of the ticket, it would be very easy for me to vote for Bill Weld for president. So I'll get to know uh, Gary Johnson better and see if he's someone who uh, I, could, uh, I could end up voting for. I just thought that was wow. That's I mean, wow. I don't. For some wow. reason, I never really pay attention to Mitt. But with that, when he says that, I'm like, wow. I can't believe that's actually wow. coming out of his mouth right I know. now. That shows you how bad things he must are, have been right? Smoking. Yeah. Speaking of smoking, we do have a high note. Yeah. You know, every now and then we talk about uh, disabled children who have cerebral palsy who have to smoke marijuana. Oh, yeah. uh, people with cancer. Uh, also, you know, there's another category of pot smokers that we don't often get to talk about. In fact, there's no real mainstream coverage of this demographic, but they're real. They're proud. And marijuana is their business. And that is the pot smoking mar- marijuana nuns who want to sell marijuana to uh, heal the world, Chase. And uh, this is a RT uh, Ruptly so a direct video of these uh, nuns that uh, at the end of the day, Chase, uh, they just like to light up and, uh, you know, have themselves a smoke. Can you look at this? Look at that old nun. Look at that nun smoking. <laughs> is she really a nun? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is their thing. Pot smoking, pot growing, pot selling nuns, Chase. <laughs> that's kind of an attractive nun right there. That's a, that, Chris, that's a bit of a... Chris, what? Uh, stop it. Okay. Stop All right, it. Chase. There you go. So they're going to see they're taking care of the plants. Well, Look at that. you know, you got to spray them down. Keep, <laughs> keep them... Keep them. <laughs> got to keep them healthy. Make sure they got enough light. Yeah. Wow. They really got a system there. Anyways, full clip. Back in January, the city of Merced uh, put a ban on cannabis <laughs> Oh, this commerce, is California? Yes. We don't think that that applies to us. <laughs> Oh, wow. You can watch the whole clip of the uh, supporters sync. Head over to our subreddit page at unfiltered.reddit.com. Especially, again, we're putting the call out to all you guys in the UK. Brits, please give us some information on the ground. Unfiltered.reddit.com. Clips we can use. If it's something that's buried inside a clip, please give us a time indication. So that way we can make sure we get the best information across to our audience. Any good stuff from the Beebs other than Top Gear, please let us know. (laughs) I don't think Top Gear is the great stuff anymore. No, it's not. Hey, Chase, are you on the Twitter if people want to get home? I am. Please follow me on the Twitter at Nunes. N U N E S. All right. All right. Did you know I'm on there? Yeah. uh, Isn't that at Chris LES? Yeah, it's new, kind of. At Chris LES. I switched over. There's also an account now at Jupiter Signal. Hey, did you know the show's live? Yes, it's live on a Wednesday. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. If we do a live event, we also try to update the calendar as soon as possible. That calendar also converts it automatically to your time zone. Remember, if you want to get your message read on our show, go over to patreon.com slash unfilter. Sign up. Become part of that 33 club. Join Club 33! And if you want access to our sinks and all that good stuff, check out the other levels there where we have different pledge amounts to get you access to all that good stuff. We also have the overtime segment 
segment coming up that's brought to you by our patrons. Woo-hoo-hoo. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of the Unfiltered Program. And we'll see you right back here next, next week. That's how we go. That's how we roll. OMG, OMG, OMG. Watch out. You knew it was coming thanks to our patrons at patreon.com slash unfilter. Episode 192's overtime segment has arrived. Let's go. I feel like this is one of those weeks where we could have like an hour long overtime. And because we've already had a big show, I just want to focus in on a couple of things. And I want to start by saying thank you to our new supporters since our last overtime segment. Shout out to Josh and Nicholas and Ida, Andreas and Lars. One, two, three, four, five new supporters. Yay! Of the Unfilter Show. Patreon.com slash Unfilter. Can we double that? Can we get to ten supporters? For no- Boy, I'd love that. If you have gotten value from this episode, if you found what we've talked about interesting or thought-provoking or even entertaining, I would really appreciate your support. Patreon.com slash Unfilter. Now, your overtime clips. We were just talking about Jeff and the Department of Homeland Security. They're also looking at that propaganda problem. Oh, which, which problem? Oh, you know, the problem that we don't have enough propaganda. On this, there are easy tactics. I know them, as you said, from politics, how to get more voice and virality to messaging that we're not using as a government uh, to get counter messages out there. You oh, yeah. Have, you know, I know something about memes, the data that you're presenting about Muslims killing Muslims. He knows this memes. Is a group that's killing more Muslims to get memes to go more viral. Look at their fancy memes compared to what we're not doing. Look at their memes compared to our memes. Fancy memes compared to what we're not doing. There's an obvious piece of legislation that we need to start working on. I've already directed the staff, but let's face it, we invented the internet. We invented these social network sites. We've got Hollywood. We've, we've got we've got this. capabilities, as, as Mr. Shake was saying, to blow these guys out of the water from the standpoint of uh, communication. So we need to work on that. We need to work on that quickly. So More we'll, propaganda. We'll engage in that effort. We mentioned uh, Victoria Newland earlier in the show. She was testifying, too, about some of the things we could do for better propaganda. I got an audio clip here for you. Uh, I love this clip because it starts out with the premise that Russia is the master of propaganda because they have RT. Of course, they can't name anything but RT, but they've got RT. You know that shitty production news agency that's an obvious propaganda arm of the Russian government that doesn't fool anybody? They've got that. Part of Russia's campaign in Eastern Europe and the Baltics and Ukraine has been to produce disinformation. They're spending a lot of money on RT television in you know, lots R- of RT. other ways yeah, to yeah, yeah. get their message out oh, yeah. into parts of Eastern Europe. Can you talk a little bit more about what we're doing to respond to that propaganda? So here's Victoria. Thanks, Senator. Well, as you know, this has been a line of effort that been, we've been working on very hard with 
members of the Congress and the Senate. So this line is very something they've been working on very hard. Now, if you're not aware, uh, just like RT, the United States actually does have its own news propaganda arm. Uh, we have several. Radio Europe is one of them. And we talk a little bit about that. Uh, since 2014, uh, the total appropriation now, State Department, USAID, BBG, Bar- Broadcast Board of Governors, uh, on the U.S. side is about $100 million oh. uh, to counter Russian propaganda. That money, wow. as you know, goes for a number of things, from uh, clean, honest Russian language programming that BBG is now putting out clean, honest. Uh, every day, the expansion of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, VOA, yeah, yeah. to about $88 million that we use in State Department and AID money. To- so this is how your United States government is spending your money, United States citizen, on propaganda. To support uh, civil society, independent media, journalist training. Um, including outside Russia for those Russian journalists who oh. have have fled. Uh, journalist training. They're providing journalist training? Let's hear that again. Back that up. Um, including outside Russia for those Russian journalists who have have fled. Um, we're also uh, doing quite a, quite a bit to uh, bolster programming inside Russia to the extent that we can. But this pales in comparison to... Imagine if Russia was doing that to us, to the United States. I mean, they have RT and they have RT America, right? And that's as far as they go. That's their beachhead. They have a multifaceted propaganda approach from training journalists, all of it. And maybe Russia does too. But you, you say, you know, the, the premise of this entire conversation is what can we do to combat their sophisticated propaganda system? And in saying what they need to do, Victoria is laying out all of the ways that we massively exceed their efforts. Russia to the extent that we can, but this pales in comparison to the 400 million at least that Russia is spending, and frankly to uh, the levels that we spent during the Cold War on these oh. kinds of things, oh, which Cold were War. over a billion dollars a oh. year in the days of old U.S. Give us more money. Give and us more money. Can you talk a little bit about the substance the of what we're doing and who we're engaging in working with us on the content? Uh, I will be... 30,000 feet, if you'll allow me to protect oh, those who participate 000. in these programs, mm-hmm. many of whom depend on, on that protection. Yeah. Uh, but we conduct training programs uh, at various locations in Europe. Training programs at various locations in Europe this is uh, for journalists. They're, the United States government is training journalists all over Europe. We conduct training programs uh, at various locations in Europe for journalists who've either fled or who've come out to get training and are planning to go back in. We support a number of Russian language news organizations in the Baltic states and in other periphery uh, countries that are designed either to address Russian-speaking populations in those home countries and counter uh, Russian propaganda or to beam back in. We obviously support Russian language programming in Ukraine, which has some impact also in Russia as well. Um, And then this good portion that goes to BBG and VOA programming, which is uh, U.S. government free news content. We also do quite a bit to pull together efforts uh, uh, of the EU, UK, Baltic states. I'm driving off laughing. This is what I'll say. Yeah, she cares a lot. Training.
I want to play a couple more clips on uh, the Orlando shooting, and then we'll move on from that. The FBI faces questions about its past checks of Omar Mateen. Agents looked at him twice in recent years and did Three not times. confirm any of the evidence of terror ties. The FBI director says there is no sign yet that investigators make mistakes. But sources tell CBS News that worldwide security firm that Mateen worked for didn't know why the FBI checked him out. Jeff Begay's is tracking that part of the story. I think that's really all you need to know. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that something? Heck of a security company there, aren't they? Woken up by my parents calling me saying, Satora, wake up, Satora, wake up. And I thought something horrible happened. I'm like, oh my God, what happened? I called them and the first thing that they told me was your ex-husband was involved in a mass shooting and, you know, reporters are at our house and calling us and they will be probably at your house too. So I was devastated, shocked, started shaking and crying because more than anything, I was so, so deeply hurt and heartbroken for the people that lost their loved ones. In the beginning, he was a normal being that cared normal about family, being. loved to joke, loved to have fun. But then a few months after we were married, I saw his instability and I saw that he was bipolar and he would get mad out of nowhere. That's when I started worrying about my safety. And then after a few months, he started abusing me physically very often and uh, not allowing me to speak to my family. Wow. Going to the ex-wife for a quote's rough, too. Whew. Obviously, law enforcement officials tasked with protecting this nation from terrorism have an extremely, impossibly difficult job, and it only takes one slipping through the cracks to cost lives. But that said, a review of the Orlando terrorist attack and several others in recent years raises some uncomfortable questions about whether current methods for screening are effective, because numerous red flags have been missed. Is this incompetence? Is it common human error? Or is it a reluctance to be seen as overly judgmental, as bigoted, as Islamophobic? I hope this isn't the way this gets painted. Is the reason the FBI missed it is because they didn't want to come across as Islamophobic. I hope that's not the route they go. He brings on uh, your buddy, my good friend, everybody's good pal. Uh, what, oh, geez, what's his face? Uh, uh, come on. Come on. You guys know his face. Uh, jeez. I'll, I'll just get his introduction because the guy, you know, we all know it is. Hayden, Michael Hayden. There it is, boy. I didn't have to wait. I knew eventually my mind would catch up. He brings in Michael Hayden to discuss how, well, it could just come down to political correctness. Of course, Hayden, former director of the NSA, is going to paint it that way. It's a little disgusting. It's a little disgusting. Of course, we're also talking about the terrorist wife. Welcome back to the lead. He killed 49 people in a rampage at a gay nightclub. And now today, pressing questions on what exactly the Orlando terrorist's wife knew. And we just got some breaking news on that subject. CNN chief national security correspondent Jim Shudo is outside Pulse nightclub. Jim, CNN now learning that the U.S. attorney in the area wants to bring evidence against the wife before a grand jury. Would that indicate that they are hoping to charge her? Well, we know that they have evidence that they want to bring before this grand jury. To bring it before the grand jury is not a decision to charge. The grand jury has to consider the evidence, and then you take the next step. But let's consider the evidence that we're aware of so far. We know that the wife has said uh, that the attacker, that the shooter, told her he was considering carrying out a jihadist attack. She says it wasn't specific, but he was talking about that. We know that she accompanied him to the nightclub prior to the attack. I think she knew he was gay as well as to other locations here in the Orlando area, including Disney properties, which investigators believe were casing uh, missions, in effect, evaluating uh, those places as potential targets. Or hand jobs. So 
That's what we know. In addition to whatever answers she's been giving investigators during those conversations, they're going to put that before a grand jury to decide if there is enough to charge her. It's a significant legal step. And Jim, we also learned today from sources that the terrorist in question made phone calls during the attack to a local television station. Uh, what can you tell us about that? To a local television station as well as to a friend to, to, to say goodbye in effect. But, but it's, it's what he said during that call to the television station. And CNN has spoken to the producer who picked up the line when, when the call happened. He said, as he had said in those 911 calls the night of the attack, that he was doing this for ISIS, for the Islamic State. Uh, and he also asked the question of the station. He said, do you know about the shooting? Uh, in effect, he wanted the shooting to be covered. Finally, Jake, I'll just add this. We spoke to a witness who was inside that bathroom with the shooter. Now get ready for this, because this is one of the things the conspiracy has been talking a lot about. He was making these calls. He also said this in those conversations. He said that there were snipers outside. He said there was a suicide bomber hidden inside that club. So he was claiming that there were other accomplices. That's not believed to be true. No, just claimed by about five eyewitnesses, I believe. But who knows? You probably heard that already. developing story. Egypt says it has found the wreckage of Egypt Air Flight 804. The plane went down last month in the Mediterranean while en route from Paris to Cairo. Egypt says the wreckage was located by a vessel contracted by its government to join in the search effort. This discovery coming just days before batteries are set to die on the plane's emergency signals. Well, there you go. Just moments before. Boy, look at that white screen. I guess they just want a lot of white in your face, huh? All right, moving on then. Thank you, ABC, for that report. It was a little shorter than we were hoping for, but we'll take it. I want to wrap it up with a couple of uh, local stories. Let's start with this one. This is kind of fun. The FBI is suing Seattle City what? Light over a records request made by Cairo 7. The lawsuit questions whether the public has a right to know where and when federal agents have set up surveillance cameras in King County. Can you believe this? Cairo 7's Graham Johnson made a records request last summer after <laughs> privacy advocates discovered ATF cameras on light poles in the Central District. Oh. A few months later, the city sent Graham some records, including a list of addresses it was keeping where law enforcement had reported putting cameras on poles. In November, we went to all of those addresses and found no active cameras. Other locations were redacted from the records, presumably because they were for specific active investigations. What do you want to bet Seattle's not the only city? What do you, yeah, I just gonna guess that. Okay, now, I, I love this spat. This is my favorite spat of the week. I, I try not to get uh, caught up in these, but this was just good entertainment. Uh, and I was actually going to play it for Mr. Chase, but he had to go. Uh, he he was he ended up telegramming me about this directly. What what a state the 2016 election is in. What a state it is. And I think this next clip, and it is our last clip for the overtime because I got to get out of here. I got to make it home. Uh, it really it really just sort of encapsulates it perfectly, doesn't it? It's Twitter war on one keyboard. Crooked Hillary on the other keyboard. He can say whatever he wants to say. May the best tweeter win after President Obama endorsed Hillary Clinton. I'm with her. Donald Trump fired first. Obama just endorsed crooked Hillary. He wants four more years of Obama, but nobody else does. To which Hillary's campaign tweeted, delete your account. Her followers made it seem like the greatest insult ever. 
They posted gifts expressing shock and awe over Hillary's comeback. She knows one of our memes. From oh snap to boom to a congratulatory toast. Though not all of us understood the magnitude of delete your account as a zinger. It's just smack talk. Yeah, I didn't even know what that means, but apparently our producer said that's what kids use to, like, say they don't like you. I think I think the technical term is... The delete your wow. account This was presumably... You see how your unfiltered show is important? Okay? Can we just take a moment and appreciate your unfiltered show? I have, I just don't think that's ever been my commentary once. Kids use to, like, say they don't like you. I think I think the technical term is... The delete your account diss was presumably sent by a Hillary aide, since tweets Hillary herself writes are signed with an H. The chairman of the Republican National Committee, Rance Priebus, jumped in, tweeting at Hillary, If anyone knows how to use a delete key, it's you. <laughs> Last week, Hillary tweaked the Donald for his Twitter habits. I'm willing to bet he's writing a few right now. And sure enough, his counterattack to delete your account soon arrived. How long did it take your staff of 823 people to think that up? I like that all of the CNN clips here, they've highlighted the text, like, you know, like an old person does when they're reading, not to be mean to old people. But, you know, like, that's just like they highlight this area right here. It's like this, the CNN reporters have done. And where are your 33,000 emails that you deleted? Crooked Hillary Clinton. I really could care less. But how could we not care when someone unexpected chimed in on the subject of Hillary's delete your account tweet? Too late for some of us, deadpanned Anthony Weiner. There's nothing like a war of tweets to put the twit in Twitter. Genimo, CNN, New York. That happened. All right, there you go. That's what I'm going to leave you on. That shenanigans. That just to leave, just remind you why your unfiltered show is important. To, just to spare you from that from time to time. But every now and then, I got to show you the dark side so you know why you want to be on the side of the good side, right? The light side. I think that's that's kind of it. That's my logic, at least. Thank you for being here. If you're one of our patrons, thank you for supporting us. If you're one of our live chatters, thank you for showing up. A big shout out to producer Matt. A ton of clips, a lot of news breaking this week for all of us to go through. He did a bang-up job. So thank you to producer Matt, and we'll see you guys back here next week.